Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is uh, Michael Adams, and it's nothing but the truth. One man's journey to find it. It is July the 26th, 2015, and uh, we're going to have uh, a show here with uh, uh, my friend uh, Gordon Comstock, and we're going to be discussing the book uh, 1984 and how the public is being controlled through many of the tactics that are explained in the 1984, and I imagine a few more things. I tell you what, folks, uh, this past week, I really focused hard on it, and i uh, just blown away. I read it before, year, decades ago. You know, I'm 47, so. <laughs> and uh, the meaning of 1984 uh, has changed for me, and uh, it's become much deeper. And I'm just really blown away by how how much uh, George Orwell's really understand the world. But before we get going, first of all, I should say hi. How you doing, Gordon? All right. Cool. Thank you for joining me. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to listen to uh, an audio book, uh, 1984. We're going to start from a certain section here. Uh, maybe listen to about uh, half a dozen pages or more. It should take no more than five to ten minutes, hopefully. Uh, and uh, the reason why I chose this section is because it kind of it, it's going to go along with what we're going to talk about today uh, about the. In the Ministry of Truth, about the party, about all the propaganda that's out there. And then we'll imagine we're going to talk about how that is, applies to us today. So, But I, I want people to, once again, hear the profound message that was shared in this one particular portion of the book. You can find it on 1984, George Orwell's Part 1 of 3 audio book, Mystic Video Books. Um, and uh, we're going to be starting at around page 89, and it'll probably go to about, what's 96 or something around there. So anyways, when we're done, I'll, we'll get going talking here. So let's go with it. Treating the whole period, to say who was fighting whom at any given moment would have been utterly impossible. Since no written record and no spoken word ever made mention of any other alignment than the existing one. At this moment, for example, in 1984, if it was 1984, Oceania was at war with Eurasia and in alliance with East Asia. In no public or private utterance was it ever admitted that the three powers had at any time been grouped along different lines. Actually, as Winston well knew, it was only four years since Oceania had been at war with East Asia and in alliance with Eurasia. But that was merely a piece of further knowledge which he happened to possess because his memory was not satisfactorily under control. Officially, the change of partners had never happened. Oceania was at war with Eurasia. Therefore, Oceania had always been at war with Eurasia. The enemy of the moment always represented absolute evil and it followed that any past or future agreement with him was impossible. 
frightening thing, he reflected for the ten thousandth time as he forced his shoulders painfully backward with hands on hips. They were gyrating their bodies from the waist, an exercise that was supposed to be good for the back muscles. The frightening thing was that it might all be true. If the party could thrust its hand into the past and say of this or that event, it never happened, that surely was more terrifying than mere torture and death. The party said that Oceania had never been in alliance with Eurasia. He, Winston Smith, knew that Oceania had been in alliance with Eurasia as short a time as four years ago. But where did that knowledge exist? Only in his own consciousness, which in any case must soon be annihilated. And if all others accepted the lie which the party imposed, if all records told the same tale, then the lie passed into history and became truth. Who controls the past, ran the party slogan, controls the future. Who controls the present, controls the past. And yet the past, though of its nature alterable, never had been altered. Whatever was true now was true from everlasting to everlasting. It was quite simple. All that was needed was an unending series of victories over your own memory. Reality control, they call it. In Newspeak, double-think. Stand easy, barked the instructress a little more genially. Winston sank his arms to his sides and slowly refilled his lungs with air. His mind slid away into the labyrinthine world of double-think. To know and not to know to be conscious of complete truthfulness while telling carefully constructed lies, to hold simultaneously two opinions which cancelled out, knowing them to be contradictory and believing in both of them, to use logic against logic, to repudiate morality while laying claim to it, to believe that democracy was impossible and that the party was the guardian of democracy, to forget whatever it was necessary to forget, then to draw it back into memory again at the moment when it was needed and then promptly to forget it again. And above all, to apply the same process to the process itself. That was the ultimate subtlety. Consciously to induce unconsciousness, and then once again to become unconscious of the act of hypnosis you had just performed. Even to understand the word doublethink involved the use of doublethink. The instructors had called them to attention again. And now let's see which one of us can touch our toes, she said enthusiastically. Right over from the hips, please, comrades. One, two. One, two. Winston loathed this exercise, which sent shooting pains all the way from his heels to his buttocks and often ended by bringing on another coughing fit. The half-pleasant quality went out of his meditations. The past, he reflected, had not merely been altered. It had been actually destroyed. For how could you establish even the most obvious fact when there existed no record outside your own memory? He tried to remember in what year he had first heard mention of Big Brother. He thought it must have been at some time in the 60s, but it was impossible to be certain. In the party histories, of course, Big Brother figured as the leader and guardian of the revolution since its very earliest days. His exploits had been gradually pushed backwards in time until already they extended into the fabulous world of the 40s and the 30s when the capitalists in their strange cylindrical hats still rode through the streets of London in great gleaming motor cars or horse carriages with glass sides. There was no knowing how much of this legend was true and how much invented. Winston could not even remember at what date the party itself had come into existence. He did not believe he had ever heard the word Ingsoc before 1960, 
that it was possible that in its old-speak form, English socialism, that is to say, it had been current earlier. Everything melted into mist. Sometimes, indeed, you could put your finger on a definite lie. It was not true, for example, as was claimed in the party history books that the party had invented airplanes. He remembered airplanes since his earliest childhood, but you could prove nothing. There was never any evidence. Just once in his whole life, he had held in his hands unmistakable documentary proof of the falsification of a historical fact. And on that occasion, Smith, screamed the shrewish voice from the telescreen, 6079 Smith W. Yes, you. Bend lower, please. You can do better than that. You're not trying. Lower, please. That's better, comrade. Now stand at ease, the whole squad, and watch me. A sudden hot sweat had broken out all over Winston's body. His face remained completely inscrutable. Never show dismay. Never show resentment. A single flicker of the eyes could give you away. He stood watching while the instructress raised her arms above her head and, one could not say gracefully, but with remarkable neatness and efficiency, bent over and tucked the first joint of her fingers under her toes. There, comrades. That's how I want to see you doing it. Watch me again. I'm 39 and I've had four children. Now look. She bent over again. You see, my knees aren't bent. You can all do it if you want to, she added as she straightened herself up. Anyone under 45 is perfectly capable of touching his toes. We don't all have the privilege of fighting in the front line, but at least we can all keep fit. Remember our boys on the Malabar front and the sailors in the floating fortresses. Just think what they have to put up with. Now try again. That's better, comrade. That's much better, she added encouragingly as Winston, with a violent lunge, succeeded in touching his toes with knees unbent for the first time in several years. Chapter 4 Okay, that's a good place to stop. I don't know if I started at the great place, but it's good information there. I don't know, Gordo. What do you think? <laughs> Does it sound familiar at all in your life today? <laughs> you know, the whole the whole novel does that that particular section of the book there, and along with the uh, the last section when he's in room one hundred and one with with uh, O'Brien. Both of those are. Uh, very illustrative in, in their description. They um, they really tell uh, how Orwell, at the time he was writing that, was himself a dying man. The part about bending over and uh, having the pains and giving him coughing fits. Well, he, he was actually dying of tuberculosis uh, while he was writing it. Um, I knew that he had problems, but I had no idea that that's... Really, I, I, I something I didn't know. I knew that he eventually... That's, he, succumbed to something similar to that. Uh, did not know he was dying, but uh, it's pretty apparent he was. Right. He was in bad shape. And he went to the worst possible place you could have gone for that. He isolated himself uh, in, a, in a, on a, uh, the island of Jura, J-U-R-A, which is uh, off of the north, I think northwest coast of Scotland. And you think foggy, Misty, humid. That's the last place you'd want to be with the TV. You want to go to an arid desert for that. But he did want to isolate himself. I think he was uh, very much sick of society by then. Yeah, it makes you wonder, you know, an intelligent man like that is almost like you say, well, I've given up on you all and I've given up up on on, on the whole system because, uh, you know. Yeah. Even the, even the medical did. system and everything says I I don't want anything more to do with you. So <laughs> yeah, the, med, the medical system the medical system at the time and and World War II cost him his wife. His wife had just died, 
uh, she had a, a an operation, which was somewhat of a routine operation, but it had to be done. And uh, people kind of warned them with the stress that she had been under from uh, World War II with the bombings of Britain and such that they, they wondered it probably wasn't a good time to do the operation, but they went ahead. And, yes, yeah, she she died right after World War II. And so then he went and isolated himself. I'm sure he was still uh, grieving. He did. They did have an adopted son, though. He had an adopted son to take care of. Yeah, and apparently, uh, uh, according to Richard, uh, was it Richard Orwells or Richard Blair, whatever his name is, his adopted son, he said that the, he actually had a great time with his father, fishing and going sailing and all that. And even in his uh, Orwells uh, or Eric Blair's dying uh, days, he still was an adventurer and. Uh, his adopted son said that uh, one of the few interviews he ever did that they uh, had many adventures their near death experiences <laughs> with sailing yeah. and all that kind of stuff so uh, apparently Orwell's always had a, a desire for uh, really feeling, you know experiencing life to its fullest in reality uh, which is kind of an interesting uh, paradox about a person like him because he's such an inwardly thinking man, his inward world, and he spent a lot of time alone, yet he was out there having these great adventures. Yeah, I had only heard about one of those times, maybe you you heard this too, but I heard he took some friends maybe sailing or on some type of a boat, and for some crazy reason they went too close to an infamous whirlpool in the ocean off of Scotland and nearly got sucked down to their dead. <laughs> Well, it sounds like him. It sounds like something that he would do and come out of it. <laughs> sounds like he was a man who was a real fighter, really. Um, and so, well, I remember in the, in the 1930s he did volunteer to fight in uh, the Spanish Civil War. He was an expatriate going and volunteering for that, and he got shot and came like within a millimeter of being killed. He got shot in the neck. Uh, Aren't too many places you can get shot in the neck and survive. <clears throat> or yeah, it sounded like you know in his time in Burma, and um, and his I, I think whatever happened in Burma really changed him quite a bit. And then his experience with the hypocrisy and this love hate experience that he developed, or not experience, but you know this love hate relationship that he has. You know, we learned about in, the, in 1984, the party, you know, the ruling elite of England and how, you know, he, at one level he hated them for their hypocrisy and all the lies. But the same, the next moment he kind of, well, he was grateful that he was part of it. <laughs> he could come make up his mind what he was feeling there. So. Oh, well, yeah, he was uh, very self-contradictory, uh, very condemning of uh, Britain as you implied with the the colonization of Burma, he wrote scathingly about that in several essays and his novel, uh, Burmese Days. But then when, yeah, when World War II came around, he he showed himself to be very patriotic and, uh, you know, pro-British war effort. Uh, He was a mixture of very much a traditionalist, but very much an anti-colonialist too, uh, very, uh, but 
I don't know. I think um, I think I think you can't develop a, a, a well-rounded mind in this life. You can't do much thinking in this life without becoming contradictory. I don't think you can. If 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 everything for you fits inside of neat little boxes, you're not really thinking. You're not really examining the world around you. Yeah, you're under the the spell or control of. Uh, well, what am I trying to think of? Uh, Somebody's program. Yeah, pretty much. And I'm trying to we'll throw it back to the book here. Whether it's new speak or not. Um, what am I thinking here? Tell me. Work with me here. <laughs> what, is it, what is a fine example of what you're saying there? Because, you know, that was one of his issues all the time was the fact that people were so uh, well, orthodox in their thinking. Oh, yeah, yeah. Unbed, unbending, well, un, unwilling to see uh, beyond what, the, well, the party line, if you will. Well, you've got two things going on. I think you're referring to double things. Oh. First of all, Newspeak in 1984, Newspeak was the, the paring down, the cutting down of language just to the bare bones, getting rid of all the adverbs, adjectives, just having mountain uh, verbs, basically. <laughs> and and the, because then you can, one of his main themes in his works was uh, lang- not only do, do our actions control our uh, language, not only do our thoughts control our language, but our language also can manipulate our thoughts. People don't appreciate that still to this day. So that was Newspeak, the cutting down of language. The other thing is doublethink in the book, and that's a big part of the portion you displayed. Doublethink is where you, you have to continually perform mental gymnastics in your mind to hold two or more contradictory thoughts and, and believe that they're both true, even though they cancel each other to believe in both. <laughs> what was today's life for you? Well, then, and Michael, that happens all over the place today. For example, you can have uh, scientists, even you can have physicists, even who agree, and maybe they even teach in university classes. They teach uh, certain laws of physics, and yet these same physicists will look at what happened on uh, 9/11 with the. Uh, collapsing towers at free fall speed, that, and then several other things that happened on 9-11 that defy the laws of physics, are impossible according to the laws of physics, and yet those physicists can believe both. That they can believe the government story about 9-11, and then they can go teach in their uh, uh, university physics classes about the laws of physics. That's double thing. Yeah. <laughs> there was an example. There you go. That's, that's for sure. I'm trying to think of other ones. Um, the one thing that comes to my mind right now is all these false flag operations where people insist that what's happening is real, but if you really look at it, you realize... Well, well, it's, another one would be the Arlen Specter's magic bullet theory. That's that's double thing. Oh, yes. There we go. <laughs> With the laws of physics again, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, so... We have, uh, you know, the JFK assassination, and then we also have um, 9-11. Uh, of course, here would be another thing would be probably early days of, um, or even now, the wars going on in Afghanistan and uh, um, Iraq and et cetera. 
Um, one, of the, one of the fascinating things, you know, we're, we came here to give these people democracy. <laughs> and they're the holders of democracy, yet the, you know, the same breath you hear all the time from uh, the experts, the experts, uh, that you're hearing all these talk shows about how dangerous democracy is. But it's really well, mob rule. You hear you have language controlling our thoughts, exactly as Orwell predicted. What is democracy? It's this vague, fuzzy term that everybody's got their own individual interpretation. It surely doesn't mean the original specific dictionary definition of what the Greeks had in mind. No, we just throw this word around, democracy. What we have right now is corporate fascism in the United States, but we're calling it democracy. Uh, and of course, the Chinese, if you, in their despotic system, they'll, they'll call it the, what, the Democratic Republic of China and Soviet Union was the Democratic Republic. Democracy means nothing. It's this amorphous, vague term, but it sounds good. And the public buys it. The same public that doesn't understand and hasn't read the novel 1984 at all. And if they did, they read it in, uh, as a teenager, and they don't, didn't get it then, and they don't remember it now. Which, by the way, brings me to the reason uh, I invited you to do this. Uh, remember, Michael, you played it was a very good video, actually, a video... <laughs> about um, Michael or Michelle Obama or whatever, whichever it is, and Serena Williams and uh, the actress. Uh, the video was by basically a Hindu New Ager guy, but it was about uh, the transgender issue. And uh, briefly, at the end of that video, he started talking about uh, the novels 1984 and Brave New World, and although all in all, it was a great video, I thought. Uh, but he did this the thing with 1984, with the novel 1984, that so many people do, even well-educated people. Even the brainiac, uh, Aldous Huxley himself did this in his famous early 60s speech at, uh, I think it was Berkeley. When he, uh, and he even he knew Orwell personally and was actually a, a contemporary and actually a, a teacher in, in a class at Eaton of Orwell's. But what happens is the uh, Huxley and this Hindu guy and so many people, they caricature, they caricature, sorry, they caricaturize, am I saying that right? They, um, they have this truncated understanding or willfully truncated understanding of the novel 1984. What, for, and maybe it's because uh, Orwell wrote, he described the torture, the brutality scenes so vividly that that's what people remember. But then they, they come away thinking that that's all 1984 was about and that that's how the public was controlled in 1984, by brutality and oppression, physical brutality and torture. When you've read, you've gone back and read it now, or a big portion of it, and already... I mean, we can list off the things that are going on. Actually, in your first 90 pages there, there's very little um, brutality at all in how the public is controlled. Now, I'm going to tell you this. If you go back and read that novel, here's what you find. It, it's a much more sophisticated novel than, oh, Orwell is warning about people being controlled by brutality. No, it's so much more sophisticated than that. Uh, the brutality and the torture was reserved for just a few select people for whom the brainwashing and the other controls didn't take. Like Winston Smith 
and like certain intelligentsia, like the poet Ample, Ampleforth and some others. That was the last resort. So only on a very small percentage of people was the, the brutality ever even needed. That was, that was you know, last, last call. How, how else are people controlled in that, in that novel? Well, uh, you, I think in the portion you played, we can figure out there's total media control going on. Total media control. And you, in the part you've read, I'm sure you've already figured out, there is uh, a total manipulation of language, the, the newspeak thing, mm-hmm. the language controlling people's thoughts. So you've got language manipulation, media control. Uh, and along with that, there's, you know, this branches off into other things. What are they doing with that media control? They're exploiting people's patriotism. Total exploitation of this idolatry, really, that people have of, of nationalism or patriotism. Nationalism is just a more aggressive version of patriotism. I think scripturally we can say they're both idolatry. Um, but, okay, how, here's another way people don't get this at all that Orwell predicted in that book because it is subtle, but it is there. Uh, the way, a big way they, they um, were able to manipulate people's patriotism was false flag attacks. Oh. Total with repetitious false flag attacks where uh, Big Brother, the, the, the inner party or Big Brother itself, they're attacking their own people sporadically to keep them on war alert, to pump up the war lust. Same, the same reason as the two minutes hate. So that's another thing. Uh, what else is in there? Um, you have uh, something that perhaps we're just entering into in our society. I know, <laughs> ominous, but we haven't experienced too much yet in this uh, in this society. Is uh, deliberate scarcity, deliberate scarcity of uh, commodities. Right. Um, uh, no, well, the other one is falsification of history, the deliberate rewriting of history. That where we ever had that. Well, this, this whole country is based on that. Yes, exactly. You know, and so, and there are there are others. There are there are others we can get into. But already we've listed three or four big ones that are in the book. Besides torture, and and these all come before the the brute the torture. You got. Language manipulation, media control, exploitation of people's uh, patriotism, using false flag attacks, and some others. So where, I don't understand how these people are missing the boat. Like this New Age Hindu guy, who I guess he hasn't read, actually read 1984 in a few years. He doesn't remember these other things. And I think Orwell wrote the, the torture scene so vividly because, as I say, he was pretty much a dying man at the time. But that's all people remember. It's, it's really, it's sad because what, what it means is more people aren't getting the message from that book that they should be getting. Yeah. Well, you know, he talks about, you know, the, the four ministries, the ministry of uh, truth, which usually he's talking about the propaganda, the ministry of peace, which is, <laughs> which is about war, the ministry of love, which is about torture and uh, law enforcement, that kind of thing. I, I, I equate it to maybe an inquisition, if you will, and then the ministry of uh, 
a plenty, which as you talk about it, you know, this design scarcity. scarcity. And that's right, yeah, which was really the Ministry of Rationing. The Ministry of what? Rationing. Oh, of rent, yes, sure, yes. <laughs> so, you, you know what, well, you see that in our, uh, the names of our ministries, our branches, sub-branches of government. You know, it used to be called the, uh, we used to, the, we, the United States used to have a Secretary of War, and that was point blank, direct, clear language, you knew what it was about. But no, oh no, now we have a Secretary of Defense. That is so Orwellian, it's scary. Oh, it's, it's, it, isn't it? And when you realize that the Ministry of Defense is, once again, it's about Minister of War, and it's about uh, or the Department of Defense. <clears throat> When's the last time we've actually defended this country? <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see here because they're fighting over there. Right. And, of course, when they try to convince you that that's what it is, that's we're defending our country by sending the war over there, uh, this whole idea of preemptive striking and uh, preemptive wars. And I'm sure the Pope used the same rationale when he was whipping people up to get into the, the original crusades back in the Middle Ages. You know, we've we got to be safe to... Gotta gotta go uh, preemptive strike them over there in the Holy Land. So <laughs> the Children's Crusade and the Knights Templar over there. Well, we know one of the things that really stinks or not stinks sinks into me uh, my brain about this Goldstein. Um, I don't consider myself a anti-Semitic, but I imagine others probably would because I'm willing to actually look at it critically the situation over in, in Israel. When you look at Goldstein and the representation of growth of who Goldstein is, this uh, that he's the boogeyman. He's the reason of all the problems in the world. And we hear this same message coming out of the UN and even out of this country. They created the state of Israel, and then they complain and and make reports about it, the cause of all the problems in the world. And and then, and then the next breath, you. Uh, if you don't support the state of Israel, then well, then you're uh, not a good Christian, and you're going to go to hell. Um, I don't know what's your what's your take on that because I find that that particular issue overwhelms everything right now, and the global scene, geopolitics, whatever, and even our own person in our country. And um, it seems clear to me, you know, people will say, well, he was anti-Semite. Um, I've read a few. Of course, many of them, it's just propaganda on their end. They don't want people to really look at what he's trying to say here. But this whole Goldstein, who's Goldstein represent to you? Well, yeah, I think what you just said, uh, people say he's anti-Semitic. It's, again, they're taking a truncated, uh, too simplistic a view of the novel. What is she, you, you mentioned this before the show. I think you, you hit the nail on the head uh, that... Uh, Goldstein, whether, whether Orwell knew this or not, he, he hit the nail on the head. Because he, he has Goldstein as this boogeyman, this uh, Osama bin Laden uh, bogus character this, that we're all supposed to hate. And he wasn't the real bad guy, but he was just the figurehead useful for whipping up war fever with the stupid, the dumbed-down masses. 
And so, you, yeah, you have this man of obviously Jewish extraction, Jewish name, uh, Emmanuel Goldstein. But he, again, he's not the real bad guy. So what's the message here? The message isn't that the Jews are, doing, you know, the text Mars message. No, it's really, it's the opposite. It's that uh, the Zionists or the, the, Jew, the Jews are, are the whipping boys, the, uh, the middlemen that are being sent out there to take the flack. And the real bad guys, the banksters, the Vatican, the real bad guys have been using, quote-unquote, the Jews, you know. They, they, they've been using Jewish people as middlemen since the Middle Ages, and they sent the, the, the Jewish people out there for collecting taxes and for uh, engaging in usury because the so-called Christians weren't allowed to engage in those things. Oh. And, of course, the, then when the, the, the Gentile European nobility in the Vatican in the Middle Ages sent the Jews out, to uh, to collect the taxes, the dumb peasants, the dumb peasants would think, you know, they would think evil of the, the Jews, like they're running things, when they're just middlemen. Yeah, I mean they're they're more powerful than the peasants. They're they're collecting the taxes, but the real power is behind the scenes. The Gentile nobility in the Vatican. Uh, I think you see that message uh, in in Emmanuel Goldstein as the front man, the the, the bad guy that might even be fake or might be dead, like Osama bin Laden was dead 10 years before he was supposedly killed. Uh, so, yeah, well, that's, I think, the message there. I don't know if Orwell uh, did that accidentally or maybe he knew it. Well, and about the, ti- the timing of the book and when it was written, surely he knew what was going on. He already knew, I'm sure by then, you know, being connected, being there uh, in Britain, uh, and he already knew something about uh, British Zionism, the plans, what was going on. He wasn't dumb about yeah. it. He knew, he knew about the, the First World War, what happened in the Middle East, and the whole plan. <clears throat> Anybody who was in the know knew that there was going to be a, a crazy yeah, and he, state of Israel. I mean, there. Uh, so, you know, and then, of course, what happens after World War II? They create the state of Israel. They create the UN and then the state of Israel. I'm sure he saw that. And he, was projecting that at least I am. I don't know if he was, but I can I can only imagine a man as bright as him doing the same thing. He was projecting what was going on in the Middle East uh, through Goldstein. People automatically equate Orwell's description of Emmanuel Goldstein with the the goat-like beard and the spectacles. People automatically equate that with uh, Trotsky, Leon Trotsky. And it was um, H.G. Wells who accused Orwell of being a Trotsky, I, I remember. But from my research, it's equally possible that the description of uh, Goldstein with the goat-like beard and the spectacles also matches up remarkably well with Sidney Webb, the I think founder and uh, the mover and shaker, I think even the leader at that time of the British Fabian Society. Ah, and when you, yeah, he he had that same look with the, the you know the thin little wiry glasses and the goat like beard, and uh, after I in the book as far, I, I, it mystified me for years where obviously Orwell had some insider information nobody can get so many things right about the future from what what I have found so far 
is, um, let's see, the book Fabian, uh, Fabian Freeway, I think it's called, by Rose Martin uh, from the late 60s, which apparently was a bestseller, but now it's completely out of print. Uh, Rose Martin. Yeah, here it is, Fabian Freeway, yep. Uh, I have a, there's a brief message in there, a brief, uh, she gives a few roster lists. It's a, it's a pseudonym, Rose Martin. I, nobody knows who she really was, but it, she gives some rosters of uh, membership roles of the Fabian Society. And uh, Aldous Huxley was a longstanding member of the Fabians. Uh, that makes sense. But uh, in 1945, there's one mention in, in 45 alone uh, that George Orwell was on the roster list. And then he wasn't after that. So it seems to me he had a brief dalliance with them, got some information of what they, they had planned, and, and uh, then had a falling out with them, similar to how he couldn't stomach the, the BBC when he worked there just prior to that. It would fit his pattern. And I, it, I'm of the opinion that 1984 is, is really a description uh, of what the Fabians wanted to do. And so much so that people have this, get this lame idea, that there's this lame excuse of where uh, Orwell got the title 1984 from. For His first title was The Last Englishman in Europe, I think. That was his first working title. But then they say, this is the mainstream story. He settled on the title 1984 because he was writing it in 1948 and he wasn't sure what to call it, so he just flipped the numbers 48 to 84. That is so simplistic. It also it goes against uh, Orwell's uh, character. He didn't do very many things without a specific meaning behind them. You know, the, the names of his characters had certain meanings. So, um, certain symbolisms. Uh, the 1984, I think it was uh, called that because that would be what that would have been the centennial of the founding of the Fabian Society, which began in 1884. Hmm. Huh. Interesting. I also have a book that... Uh, or, and, then, and then, of course, you've got this, you got uh, back to Sidney Webb, just a little... He died in, in uh, 1947, and it looks to me like he was a real... He was... Uh, a leader of the Fabian Society itself, along with, uh, looks like he was, uh, he's one of the earlier mem early members of the Fabian Society in, in 1884, along with George Bernard Shaw, after, uh, I'm just going to read a little bit here from, uh, <clears throat> they joined uh, three months after its inception, so he was right there from the beginning, Along with his wife Bernice Webb, and then um, Beatrice, I think. No, Beatrice, that's right, Beatrice. And um, let me go from there. So, so the guy was, you know, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just wanted to throw that in there. And there's a few other little tidbits in that book that make me think uh, that it's really about the Fabian Society's goal, it, a satire of them. There's a part in the book where Winston Smith, the character. And again, his name is very symbolic. But Winston Smith, he's sitting in, a, I think, a cafe, and he's hearing this uh, other outer party brainwashed guy uh, parroting some 
official orthodoxy. And he, Winston thinks to himself that he, he equates it with duck speak. And he says it like two or, one or two more times, duck speak. Like, oh, like, you know, just quack, 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 quack a duck. Uh, and there's no other references to duck in the book. It, it just seems a little bit out of place. And I think that is a little jab again at Sidney Webb, you know, web feet like a duck. Maybe that's a stretch. But again, when you read that book, there's, there's no other references to ducks. And, why, and when, ducks are not really that equated with um, mindlessly jabbering. I mean, parrots are, but people <laughs> we don't really say, you know, people duck some, somebody else's information, but we, we do say they parrot other people's information. So it's just a little unusual, and I think it's another little sign that that book is really about the Fabian Society. Well, I, or, I, I would imagine it would be. I mean, I, here he, he's, he's connected to, whether he wanted to or not, is the necessary evil, I guess, to the, uh, the, the ruling elite, the ruling society in, uh, in British, uh, in Britain, and here we have, by sign, this book is written, the Fabian Society is in full-blown force and <laughs> influencing everything in Britain and the and, um, United States. So I can only imagine that that's a very good observation and more, more uh, very well. More, you know, back to Goldstein, he is a caricature that represents more than just the Jew, obviously. He represents Fabian society and uh, and different ways, which is the way he would do that. And you're right, you're, the whole thing about the uh, quacking like a duck thing that, that shows up in the book, it's just out of the blue. And I, that hit me too. I'm like, why did he use that analogy or whatever? I don't know if he's using the right word, of a duck. All the things, all the things that really does stick out in the book. So, you know. Ah, I'm glad, yeah, so you noticed it, uh huh? Oh, yeah, because it doesn't go along with what the rest of the book really is, you know, why, of all the things, a duck? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's very interesting. And, I, you know, I know about the Fabian Socialists. I haven't really done a great study on the Fabian Socialists and their, their influence and impact on lives, but I, I, I see it over and over again. Well, you get some impact in my own life. I have, uh, just to give you a little a bit about myself, uh, my son's mother, her mother, would be his grandmother, went to, was it uh, Wesley, is it, uh, what's the one, what's the, the, all, the all gals college at Northeast Wesley College, is that what it is? Wesley, is that it? Yeah, something like that. Whatever it is, flat out Fabian Society uh, institution. This woman has two PhDs and operates just like a Fabian socialist. So it's just, uh, it really hit me like a ton of bricks when I finally realized what influenced my son's mother. And <laughs> anyway. of course, of course. And why me of all people? I mean, I'm a nobody. I really, am a nobody. <laughs> Why did that happen to me, of all people? Of all the guys that get caught up in that, you know? Oh, well, some more, that's the common thing nowadays. I mean, most people are brainwashed. And colleges have become little factories for that, uh, spreading these Marxian beliefs, Marxian 
teachings are. You know, feminism is, is one of them. It's a system of a branch of Marxism. And there we go again with uh, with this book as well. You know, his his relationship with um, oh gosh, what's the name of the the woman that he ends up having a relationship with again? I always forget Julia. her name. Julia. Yeah, Julia. Of course, I should remember that. But um, and anyways, and his his approach to women. I mean, even you know, it's, you know, it talks earlier in the book about you know as he's getting ready to write his his journal and he's and he's worried about being busted and you know who who does he automatically assume will be the person that will bless them? A woman. <laughs> and I don't know if you catch that or not. So I thought that. I thought that was fascinating. Some big mouth uh, obnoxious woman will be the one that will will turn him in. Denounce him. Yeah. yeah. I thought that was really a brilliant observation because the truth of the matter is that has what has happened. And if you look now back at uh, feminism and the connection of the baby socialists to that, and, wow, interesting, very interesting. And you saw how women were changed. The the nature of women was changed in 1984. People, it's a minor theme, so people don't pick up on it. But it does come up a few times. Winston's wife and the other women their femininity was indoctrinated out of them. They were brainwashed to not be feminine anymore. And so they weren't. Uh, they, um, they acted like men, and they dressed like men. And what do we have today? There's, when you find a, a truly feminine American woman, it's, a, it's, it's very difficult in our society. You, you can go to uh, other parts of the world well, the American their, their version of what a truly feminine woman will be is would probably be uh, like the Kardashians, and, you know, basically all smoking up and looking like a tart and looking like a witch. But that's your new feminine. And that, or we predicted that too. The only femininity you will find will be a caricature of that, a, a debauched version of a prostitute. You know? Oh yeah. So you think about the lady and, and that he was with, and you know uh, the, the disgust he was with looking at because he, and it's how she was. His face was just. She was old and hardly, but she face is covered in makeup. Hidden. So, you know, this whole thing of, of yeah, so the prostitute will be all covered in makeup. Uh, the women at the party and all that will be workers like men, um, you know, working on the press, doing mechanical work, that kind of thing, all dressed the same type of thing. You know, one thing I was thinking about, too, because, you know, I, I watched the, the movies, uh, not now, but in, not in the recently, but maybe a few years, well, not even a few years ago, probably it's going to be 15 years ago, at least, or even later than that. And anyways, um, Eric the Blacksmith just finally calling me. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, anyways, uh, I just lost my thought here. Uh, where was that? So talking about women, how they character it's not even character he's explaining what was happening to women, how they're being uh their roles are changing, how they are becoming more either the masculized. Yes. So there's just two versions. They become very masculinized. And so you look at the, the roles today that we see of women, even in politics, uh how many of them have their their short, bushy haircuts. Um I'm trying to think of someone that's uh 
Oh, who was the one that was in charge of the NSA for a while? And, uh, <laughs> you know, um, okay, yeah. when you're done with this thought, let me add on to something there that just came up last night. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so, so Napoleano, is that her name, something like that? Or little dikey sort of... Janet? Janet, yeah. And then... Um, I mean, it's just, you know, I can I think all these names, like even, even Hillary Clinton, you know, her questionable, how she's kind of a manly uh, woman. Um, uh, but anyways, so the roles of the women have changed and systematically have been changing where women are power in you know, the images. If you're going to be a, a real woman of today, someone of influence and power, then you're going to happen. <laughs> become more manly. But then there's the other version where you've got the other thing with the Kardashians and you have the, like Kim Kardashian and she's like just caked up with all this makeup and just, you know, the whole shopping. Huh? That's the slut version. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the two versions that we're getting. And, and there's nothing in between. There's no virtuous feminine woman anymore. That's what Orwell was saying was going to happen. That's what's happened. And that's what has happened, and that's what was happening during his day. Uh, apparently, and now this goes back to the Fabian socialists and how they wanted to change everything, right? You know, uh, and they're just a group. They're not the group. They're, I don't think. Maybe they are. I don't know. But they're uh, at least at this stage, my understanding, they're a group uh, influencing the culture, and trying to change things. You know, <clears throat> of uh, their liking, I guess. You mentioned the short hair and, and women thing that reminded me that just last night you <laughs> get a kick out of this just last night my um one of uh, a family member sent me an email with an attached mp3 on it of John MacArthur and I'm sure you're familiar with John MacArthur right uh and my, this family member was touting it as uh John MacArthur gets it and he's railing against you know something you know finally John MacArthur's speaking out and so I listened to a part of it and I, I had to turn it off because I couldn't listen to it. was he blaming men again <laughs> For it all. Uh, he, he may have got there eventually but what he was doing was he was uh, preaching against homosexuality and the recent uh, you know homosexual rulings on marriage and all that and oh, so he starts out, he goes into um, the verse in Deuteronomy uh, where it, pro- it warns uh, men from dressing like women and women from dressing like men. And so or, MacArthur uses that as his foundation for uh, preaching against homosexuality. Okay, fine, I can, no problems, right on. But I emailed my family member and... You know, and most of the people he attached it to, who were mostly family members. And I said, look, I listened to a part of this. I can't listen to it anymore, and this is why I can't go to these corporate churches anymore. And this is a, a symptom of that. I said, here's a guy here, who I'm very familiar with. Here MacArthur uses this scripture to preach against homosexuality, but he doesn't even have the guts or the discernment to also put the women in his audience who are wearing pants on notice that they're also violating the scripture. He doesn't have the guts, and he doesn't have the guts or the discernment because 
well, if it's a gut thing, it's because he's worried that the feminism is so infiltrated and corrupted the churches that you would have some angry feminists shouting and raising a ruckus and, thre- and eventually threatening to take away his 501c3 tax-exempt state-incorporated license to preach if, if he preached actual stuff about women in, in our culture. And, you know, I got an email back from a, a, a different family member saying, oh, come on, it's a, that verse it has nothing to do with women wearing pants. You're taking it too far. And I emailed back and said, no, it does. I said, the problem is not with Scripture. It's with our society. Our ability to know right versus wrong, according to the, this is what the Bible says, you know, we, it's our society that's twisted. God's saying that women should dress like women and men should dress like men. And it doesn't matter if it's pants or kilts or whatever it is that men in the society wear, women shouldn't be doing it. They should have a different apparel. They don't get it. They don't get it or they're afraid to talk about it. You know, it's all well and good and obvious to preach against homosexuality, but to preach against feminism, they're not going to touch that. They're afraid to. Or to, or, or they lack the discernment. Yeah, it seems to be that way. They see the, clearly there, this whole transgender movement, this whole, the whole thing of just blurring the lines, right? Making it everyone, you know, you know, there was a time when there, um, and maybe this is what Orwell was also kind of talking about. There was a time when women were women and men were men. Yes, and it was kind of conservative and. Outlook on life, and but there, there's an importance to it all, and it's not just being you know male chauvinistic pig. Although people that will blame Orwell for being that—that that he was a chauvinist—I don't think so. I think he was just explaining what was going on. Even hey, if he like today's Western civilization standards, anybody who thinks like men and women did. 100 years ago or before, they're all chauvinists. Everybody's a chauvinist. Yeah, okay, because our society's got all the answers. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I got something that could go to deviate from this a little bit because there's so many things to talk about and then as we go on with this. And hopefully we do a few more shows down the road of this. Cause, and then, uh, But I guess for the first show, it's going to be bouncing here and there and everywhere. But when we look at... Uh, uh, I guess it would be the Ministry of Truth. And that he describes it as a, a building. It's like a pyramid. Do you remember that? Oh yeah, yeah, that stood out. Sure. What is, What is your take on that? What is this? What is this you know, obviously, there's a reason why it's a pyramid. Um, what is his suggestion there? My take is one of the many, many times when I read and read that book where it totally. It kind of freaks me out. It mystifies me. Now, do I know that? Do I know that uh, Orwell was talking specifically about the New World Order? And he, how far do you want to take it? How much do you really think he knew? I don't know. That's what mystifies me. Uh, did he just get? That's one of those things where did he? Did he just get lucky? Was it an accident? How did he? Could he get that specific? I mean, to, to get into you know the back of the dollar bill stuff and give it. The architecture of the ministry of uh, of love—that is a creepy one. I don't know. That's one of the many mysterious things about that book. 
Oh, that's right. It's, it's, it's actually, was it the ministry of love or the ministry of truth? I can't remember. Because I know he talk, describes the ministry of love as this bleak building with no windows and just kind of a... Yeah, I forget. Yeah, I don't know which one was the pyramid or if they all... That I forget. But there is one of them, at least one of them is a pyramid. Well, this is, I'm going to give you my little take on this because I believe it's the Minister of Truth. Now we're talking about propaganda. We're talking about the media and uh, this whole hierarchical structure. And at the very top is the pyramid, of course, is they're dictating what is going to come out and leading to Big Brother. Big Brother is at the very top, if you will. And that everyone else is compartmentalized. The bricks of the building, uh, the, the pyramid, if you will, are representing the different compartmentalization of people. And no one ever really quite knows what's going on. We're just regurgitating uh, the party message. Uh, that's my first take on it. And of course, is you know the problem with first of all, you know, when we have these discussions about uh, George Orwell or anybody in particular, we bring our own biases with us. Uh, at least I do, and so I'm constantly wrestling with that. You know. Uh, am I really understanding what this person is saying, or am I just projecting my own thoughts and opinions upon it? So, but anyways, it's why the pyramid. It certainly was. There was a reason for that. Of all the descriptions that described the building as a pyramid, it just kind of really hit me hard. Like this guy was really trying to suggest that you know, and the way the structure really works is a pyramidal structure. And and was he hinting of? You know the Freemasonic, high degree Freemasonic connection. There's another thing to consider too, and that is, this is an author who had to get this published by. He had to get it through mainstream publishing outlets. His publisher was a Warburg. You know that's a direct, very close connection to the international banksters. He had to get this um, published, so he he couldn't get too. He, he had to get specific, but not too specific. Or it never would have been. Well, you know, I brought out the email to you is a, clearly the reason why he he worked this book in such a decoded way was to get it published. Plus the fact if you start bringing up the true power structure and names, well, that's career suicide now, isn't it? So I mean, let's be honest yeah. about it. If we, if, we if, if he was flat out honest and started. Mentioning names and and organizations, uh, you and I would not have known the book 1984. Or exactly. if, if we ever did, it would be in the circumstances that we're in today. Like you and I, well, you're much you're further ahead of the game of realizing that we're going to have to go into the past and find old books that have been memory old to really understand our present. Which now goes back to also with this whole book, when he brings up this whole idea of him, you know, there's that book that he sees with the yellow pages, and then it, and he talks, so he has this little uh, observation, if you will, of this old book that was, so he had to be at least 40 years old, if not older, with its yellow pages. And um, this, this subtle hint from George Orwell that if, about the importance of, of books of the past and how they have been suppressed and how um, uh, difficult, not, how they've been suppressed and what gems many of them or a few of them are 
and how important it is to as for us to actually go into the past. I think that's what you and Keith have been doing, and uh, it really opened up my eyes of all things to realize that if I was going to understand my present, I was going to have to look at some books of the past. And we're talking now 100 years plus. It's not just 40 years. It's now 100 years, 200 years plus to even understand your world. Yeah, people people make a big deal out of uh, book burning, how heinous a crime that is, when really book burning... Sure, it's wrong, it's, uh, but it, what uh, something book burning does is it also brings attention to the book. And so whatever books aren't burnt, because they never can get all of them, especially in the print age, So book burning is uh, counterproductive. It creates a scarcity, and we know that scarcity makes uh, things more valuable in the eyes of, of people. So what's more, much more effective than, and heinous than book burning is sub- just ignoring books not republishing them, not, uh, not promoting them, just ignore them. And I'm talking if you're a mainstream book publisher, someone comes to you with a factual book, a very well-written book, but it exposes the real powers that be, it's too close to home, they're not going to publish it. Now, 100 years ago, they would have published it, but it wouldn't get republished. And so that's really the only place you can find truth so often anymore are these old books that are out of print. You can get them used. You can even get them used on like Amazon often and some other places. Sometimes there'll be there'll be a little bit of a markup usually. Sometimes there'll be a lot of a bit of a markup, uh, and that's really that's where you find truth anymore. So you, it's, to 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 rail against book burning. And, oh my gosh, I hope <laughs> that is so not the problem anymore. It's the suppression of books by ignoring them. Or, yeah. or, or systematically, say for instance, we look at the public blacklisting, them. public library, yeah, blacklisting. But even there's like the public libraries, and now they have, uh, you know, they take out, they have uh, an agenda of taking out older books, anything that might be, uh, uh, I don't know, offensive to the party. I guess you know that does go along with the party spoken. So you know they have. Um, a system of weeding out what books you ever will be exposed to to begin with. That's from a very early of age. Um, quite yeah, that's true. Library well, I, for, some, for, some, for some reason, that moment, especially when he describes the, um, especially when he describes the the yellow pages of the book and how it was there uh, on a shelf, just in the distance, almost at reach, and how he just kind of yearn for it to want it to want it you know what I mean uh, to know the truth or at least to open it up and see what it was actually talking about and um, um yeah anyways I keep my for some reason all of a sudden I'm getting messages from people and phone calls <laughs> sorry I got a little distracted there so hey we go back to this whole thing about the uh, uh, how they um, suppress this memory hole thing, how they suppress information, and how they actually go about it. And, you know, uh, I don't know, what's your take on that, once again, as, as far as how they go about that? And, um, now, we talked a little bit about the fact that you just, they just don't have a second printing or they just uh, don't print it at all. 
I don't. I think about 1984, and I think about Animal Farm. And didn't both those books have? Didn't he have a problem with having finding a publisher? Wasn't it was it T. S. Eliot or something like that, or his publishing company? Did he try to go through them first, and they rejected yeah. it? The problem with it, he had a, Animal Farm. He certainly had a problem publishing it because it uh, that is that is much more obviously. Uh, a criticism of Joseph Stalin is the bad guy there. And that's that's another mistake people make. They equate Big Brother with Joe Stalin. No, 1984 is a much broader in scope. Animal Farm is specifically about the Bolshevik Revolution. 1984 is not. Uh, but in Animal, Animal Farm, at the time it was written and he wanted to get it published, it was in the middle of World War II. And so the British and the Allies, they wanted the propaganda to be that Joe Stalin was not a mass genocider. Joe Stalin was Uncle Joe, our war ally. So they did not want a book published that criticized Joe Stalin. Now, right after World War, War II, when all of a sudden Winston Churchill gave his Iron Curtain speech and suddenly everybody was worried about uh, the, the commies and the Cold War had begun. I mean, very right there you have uh, what's going on in the, in the novel 1984 with the about face. Uh, we're at war with East Asia. Oceania is at war with East Asia. Oh, wait. No, Oceania is at war with uh, Eurasia. Oceania has always been at war with Eurasia. Um, so it, it was. he could easily get it published. And I think he did get, finally get it published immediately after World War II because then, yes, Joe Stalin, it was okay. It was even official orthodoxy for Joe Stalin to be the enemy then. So it was a very Western book after World War II, but during the war... Oh no, they, they wouldn't touch this. <laughs> That's really interesting. That's, you know, we started out with the show with the, playing that recording of parts of uh, 1984 when he brings up that. And uh, once again, like uh, what you're saying, uh, that Oceania and it's an alliance with Eurasia uh, and, uh, for a short time, about four years, but... Um, but that knowledge didn't exist, and that the party line and what everybody was told was that they've always been allies. Mm-hmm. How they manipulate, um, and it's interesting too because you look at the proles. You know, I consider myself a prole for sure. I'm not, I'm not at all part of the party, and um, not even close. And we look at this once again. You know, the old slogan from this book. You know, who controls the past? Uh, controls the future, who controls the present, controls the past, how they use that, they have used that. And, are, you know, this is one example of this that in, in, in our short lifetime, especially the past 10 years, where the Al-Qaeda is the enemy, then he's the friend. ISIS is the enemy, if you find out that ISIS is not the enemy, that it's actually the government. Just constant mess is going on where... Oh. They're bouncing back and forth. One moment it's the enemy, next moment it's they're the friend. And one moment it's Osama bin Laden, and the next moment it's Saddam Hussein. Right. And uh, and then it, and then of course for those in the party, uh, I think those probably maybe we are part of the party. We don't even know it. We're the outskirts looking in. Well, yeah, the outskirts. That's where Winston Smith was. Yeah. Uh, that uh, we. Uh, Go back to the state of Israel too, Netanyahu, and it's you know one moment oh we got to support him, it's the greatest thing. This moment oh he's the enemy, and this goes now back to this whole thing too about O'Brien because I really believe that 
and from my own little research that I've done on Eric Blair, that he had an issue, an issue with the Roman Catholic Church or, or Catholicism, and that uh, as I sent that email to you and I found that quote, I found a couple of good ones. I didn't have to well, look too hard to find them, by the way. Um, but um, one was uh, he had a friend, and it was, it was he asked him, you know, why are you so interested in reading um, Roman Catholic literature? And, and he, his quote was, because I want to know my enemy. I want to know the enemy. And I think it was a pretty profound statement to say that. <laughs> the reason why he, and, and, you know, he kind of, uh, I could connect with Orwell, uh, or, yeah, Orwell, because you know, you look at my, I look at my own self. I can't, I can't say what you're going through, but for me, um, you know, learning about the Jesuits, learning about the connection to the Roman Catholic Church in the higher structure thing, and why their their involvement in all these wars and and all the problems in our lives, and that he obviously realized that in an early age and was obsessed about it to a point of being annoying, and I imagine. People feel that same way about a person like myself. Um, but yet, what you know, I imagine that you know when he finally put the pieces together that religion is a big part of the problems of this world, and that for that particular religion is the Roman Catholicism. This is what it says here. Um, I guess this is in nineteen thirty-one. He explains to Christopher Hollis. A fellow Eton, um, how do you pronounce that? E T O N I A N. Etonian. Etonian, thank you. And Catholic, why he regularly read Catholic press, quote, I like to see what the enemy is up to. And, end of quote. And <laughs> then another quote here is Eric Blair to a friend in 1931, quote, Long may they fight, I say. So long as the spirit is in the land, we are safe from the RCs. <laughs> and so uh, he also denounced Romanism as an ecclesiastical equivalent of Stalinism. So this guy, uh, he really had an issue with what was going on, in particular the hierarchical structure, and that he realized that the Rome was at the top of it, causing a lot of these problems. Uh, I found that, and I'll go back to O'Brien and his, you know, his, you know, being interrogating Winston in Room 101, which that's what a symbolic Room 101. I mean, I mean, you remember college and all the 101 courses that you took? <laughs> yep, that's right. Yep. <laughs> But anyways, um, we got this uh, O'Brien. It's clearly uh, if it's not the Jesuits, it's the it's the it's, it's the priest class. It might not have to be the Jesuits. It doesn't even have to be the Jesuits. I mean, it's basic. He's a member of the Church of England, so you know that's basically what's part of the Catholicism itself. It's it's more than a religion to it. So um, well, he was definitely he was definitely trying to get a rise out of his English readers. By having the, the the tormentor with the with the Irish name, <laughs> absolutely. There's no. I mean, these names are. What I one of the things that hit me the most about uh, reading this book this time around is the names. 
the names that he chose, like O'Brien. I mean, why of all places O'Brien? And, you know, Brian talking about in his rant, and maybe, you know, one of the things, I'll, at the end of the recording, maybe I'll, I'll, I will play that section as well, the audio. But, uh, you know, Orion clearly is a priest. He represents the priest class. To me. Now, I imagine, when, you know, 20, uh, 20 years ago when I read the book for the first time, or it was, I guess, 30 years ago now, <laughs> um, never would have been any connection, but no mistake at all that Orwell used O'Brien in his, in his description. And also with O'Brien as he's interrogating or re-educating uh, um, uh, Winston. Just the things are coming out of his mouth. You know? I don't know. Uh, it's very true, like I said earlier, that Orwell was the type of writer, and many writers are do this is they they don't do too much without some symbolism behind it and yeah there's some definite symbolism behind o'brien take a look at the other names i'm you know i think we can say julia is derivative of juliet from romeo and juliet and it's a kind of a i think he did that because if you look at the the, the relationship in uh that julia and winston have it's 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 you know it's it's messed up <laughs> Uh, so it's, and, and, it, and it turns into a tragic ending. So yeah, absolutely. well, that and it's all about lust. That's and it's like levels of lust. That's probably really my only beef with the book. But, uh, but okay, take a look at the name, the name Winston Smith. Winston is obviously Winston Churchill. It's a reference to like uh, elite people, powerful people. But then you get the name Smith, meaning like your average Joe, your everyman. So. What he's saying there, I think, is uh, Winston and Smith, you know, the elite and the commoner. So he's saying that this character represents everybody, meaning also this world that he's depicting, it is encompassing, it's engulfed everybody, elite and commoner. Yeah, I think so. I think you're, uh, well, yeah. Well, definitely, I can see it. Definitely, Winston clearly is a reflection. Reflection to Winston Churchill and Smith. And I can see where you're saying now. Because I, I was asking myself, why Smith? I understand Winston. Why did you choose Smith? So that's a great way of of explaining that. That yeah, he's, he's representing the average day Joe, if you will. Um, and that uh, so you, you got O'Brien, you got Winston, you got Julia, Romeo, Romeo and Juliet. Um, oh gosh, who else do we have there? Um, well, what was the character of the guy that's a fat guy that was sweating like a pig? Parsons. Parsons. Now, that's that name. Why did he choose that? Because I, I, I don't, I mean, for me, because I live in 2015, I think of Parsons, I think of NASA. But that, that's the, I'm sure that's not what he was thinking. Why do you think he chose Parsons? Because <laughs> Parsons is quite a character himself in that whole. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. uh, you know, this guy, this blind follower of the party, totally brainwashed by the system, got his wife there and the kids, and the example of how, of, uh, how this, you know, the, the twisting of roles again where the parents are afraid of the kids or the children. Uh, I'm sure everybody knows a guy like this. Think of a guy 
who he's a fat guy who loves to sit and watch sports. He's a couch potato. He eats, you know, junk food. He lives for sporting events and he watches the news and believes everything the news and his politicians tell him. And he's gung ho for all of it. You know, Mr. Super Patriot, not that he would ever lift a finger to fight in a war or anything like that, but boy, he's super couch potato patriot, sports watching fan guy. That's Parsons. Um, and also that he's untrustworthy, really. He's uh, yeah, he's a coward. And that he would turn you in a heartbeat, turn you in a heartbeat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and this, whole, this whole super corporate life well, that we have and how superficial it is. Super- well, you remember this, Michael, at the end. Maybe you didn't get this far again, but at the end, Parsons gets thrown in jail along with Ample Fork and uh, Winston gets thrown in the Ministry of Love. And Parsons, in his craven, sniveling way, he starts bragging about how it was his own child that turned him in for having uh, thought crime against the government. You, I run into people like this all the time who... They, they are so slavish in their mentality that the, the U.S. government could tax them to death and they would defend it. They would defend anything, any amount of – something that 100 years ago or 200 years ago uh, Americans would just decry and rail against such as the amount of, that we're taxed today, for example. Uh, you – masses of people today that will just defend it all the way that and think it's great just because the the media and the politicians told them that's the way you're supposed to think that's parsons he 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 was his own child was brainwashed against him to turn him in to denounce him so that he would be executed tortured and executed and he was proud of his child for doing that i don't know about you michael i meet people like that every day in my walks well, yeah, I think it, you know he he Parsons really does represent the average person that, uh, in Western civilization who's conformed to it. This is the result of conforming to uh, corporate America, if you will. Uh, I think uh, this whole, of course, is not really. Some people say that yeah, 1984 is about America. I think it's something much deeper than that. And, and I really just think if you think about England itself, and I lived in England, and this is middle management, the middleman, if you will. In order to be middle management, to be a middleman, you have to conform completely to the party line, whether it's working for Walmart or for the public school system, whatever it may be, to be in middle management, you have to be a suck up. That's Parsons. And, and what's the, you know, it's just, and getting fat off. The, you know the rewards of being a stock up and compromising oneself, and that the ultimate goal, reward, and accomplishment that a person ends up getting that is this blind allegiance to the, the states, uh, just totally entrapped into the beast system. As I, you know, if I look at it scripturally, the beast system. What is it? What does it mean to really be? Uh, Entrapped into the B system. Well, in the year 2015, that's being a guy who stares at the television or even the computer all day. Um, that is just getting fed off junk food and is a 
evangelist, if you will, is a one of these uh, not many an evangelist, but yeah, he's an evangelist, but he's also what the what I think these um, these religious fanatics that think it's you know so wonderful that they're sending their their, their children over to overseas to die in, a, in an insane war, and they think that they're really being great patriots and being godly people and uh, evangelical. He's, uh, when I think of uh, uh, when I think of Parsons, I think of a your typical mindless, thoughtless evangelical American. <laughs> I, I'm sorry to laugh. I, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But of course, and, I don't think that that uh, Eric Blair was thinking about that. But I'm just projecting now what my reality, what I've seen. So, who was it then? Who was who was Parson then? Because you know, you're talking about the British Empire, Britain, who still goes along pretty much the same lines. These typical middle management suck-ups. And um, remember also when they have their heart attacks or get their cancers from the uh, junk food and toxins that they're exposed to and that they ingest, they will trust whatever mainstream medicine tells them. And, of course, as we talked about last time, mainstream medicine is long controlled by the Rockefellers and the other uh, inner party members, and and the, the real cures are withheld from them. For in, in place of expensive treatments that will keep them sick but keep them alive a little longer and make a profit from them. Hmm. Well, and, I don't know, what's, what, what do you, you think about the message from when we look at Winston and he's uh, reflecting on his past and thinking about writing his journal and he thinks about his how his his parents and his sister were sacrificed for his for him, in order for him to 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 be or to live, they had to die type of thing, and it goes along one now with Parsons and his own little story too, because um, you know it's more than just the uh, it's just a very symbolic message Parsons and his wife and his kids and then also what. Uh, you Winston, Winston with he was a child as well, and losing his parents, and hardly even a, a distant, dim memory of his sister type of thing. You know. Uh, yeah, that part. I was going to mention how the Parsons illustrate the destruction of the family. Uh, as far as Winston's recollection of his own family, right after whatever war happened that's alluded to in the novel, there's, I don't know that there's any symbolism behind it, but I'll, I'll tell you something interesting. Just a little like, idiosyncratic quirk that runs through all, like, just about every Orwell novel I've encountered, and that is um, just, I think Orwell, on a personal basis, there was something nagging at him personally that he felt guilty about. You remember, he re- you remember Winston, when he has his character, Winston, uh, recalling as a boy, I think it was one of the, the last thing, scenes he remembers interacting with his mom and his sister, he had stolen 
a chocolate, the rest of a chocolate bar from his sister. He didn't want to share, and he stole it. And was greedy about that. And he ran away, and then he never saw his sister nor his mother again. There's, it's just weird. There's something that comes up time and again about that in other Orwell novels where he felt guilty. He did something like something small as a boy where he felt guilty about. And of course, now that I'm thinking about that, I'm forgetting the other examples, but I'm telling you that's there. It's just a little quirk about him. Uh, he tended, his protagonists tended to be uh, anti-heroes. They, I, I, it's another reason I like him as a writer. I think he was honest, and he sh- he showed all too clearly his character's flaw. I think he was talking about himself too. Was he was projecting himself? Oh, he, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Winston clearly is George Orwell. <laughs> That's way yeah. yeah. You know, and then if we really break it down, right? If we get done with the the names, person uh, going back to Winston Smith. You know, we talk about the Winston Churchill and the Common Man. Isn't that not in a way, symbolic of George Orwell, his uh, div- his divided uh, allegiance to the common man, along with well, the party, if you will, the ruling elite. That he had this mixed feelings. You know, he cared about the working class, but he also realized that <clears throat> you know that he had to that he, well that he was loyal to the party. Yeah, it, that you see that in Burmese days, his first novel, not his first book, because that was down and out in Paris and London, but in his first novel, Burmese days, his character, um, again, he's an anti-hero. He's got heroic aspects about his, him, but he's got real flaws, too. And the, the main one, he's... The character in Burmese days, who again is uh, must surely be autobiographical because Orwell himself was a constable, a British constable in colonial Burma, right? As he writes in other essays, but his character in that book, he he doesn't mix with the other. He doesn't like hanging out, associating with the other uh, English constables around him. He doesn't like English society. He tends to favor hanging out with the Burmese. He finds them more congenial, more honest. <laughs> It, no, well, I shouldn't say that because he writes about their flaws too. Uh, but he, he ends up spending actually so much time around the Burmese that he, the, character, the, the, the other English constables, the, the other English people there, they start talking about him. But there's also this thing with the character having this streak of cowardice about him. He's He's... He's afraid to take on this other, to fight this other English uh, constable that's bullying him all the time. So there's a, there's a cowardly streak in this protagonist, despite the fact that he's got some virtues as well. And yeah, that's again autobiographical because Orwell hated, he, he did not like what was going on over there with British, the colonizing of Burma, and yet he was taking part in it. He himself was receiving a paycheck doing it. Yeah. And, you know, isn't that all of us? Especially those yes. of us who, who have affinity to uh, Orwell's himself and also Winston is that that's us. If we're honest, yes. yeah, that is us. You know, we're this, this dilemma. We recognize there's so much wrong with the system that we're in, yet how much are we really doing anything about it? And I look at myself, too. 
and growing up and through life, uh, you know, when I was an athlete, um, I couldn't stand the people I was around. Uh, the athletes, you know, the, the, the guys in the football team, I, I didn't like any of them. They were a bunch of uh, mindless meatheads. That's how I saw them. I never could, you know, their talk and their conversation, the superficialness of it all, I just never, I was never interested in going along with the, um, the conversation. Uh, when working, you say, when I was a forest firefighter in California, and I uh, connected more with uh, the Mexicans and with other uh, irony of irony being half uh, or parts Native American and working with uh, the Navajos, it, that was I wanted to, but they hated me. <laughs> they made I don't know how many times I was told to f off. <laughs> My time around them that was quite square scary, but or maybe even in the workplace, you know, I always had an affinity with uh, more of the well, I. At the risk of sounding racist, uh, black up people and uh, with other, I was been never liked the middle class on up. But I also understood that in order to go anywhere uh, in life, I had to at least associate some way with them. It's a dreaded relationship that we really have in this world, where we, you know, if you want to uh, have a, a halfway decent job, uh, you do have to conform. And yet to be around people that you can't stand. Yeah, there's little. There's a paragraph in 1984 that really strikes home with me. It is well, only because it's it's just a little reference, but it's it's just so it's to me specific. It, there's a uh, Winston is going for a walk by himself because he he likes you know. Solitude. He, he likes it more, certainly more than the people around him. He, he likes his privacy. He likes his independence. But he's yeah. living in a he's living in a society where that is forbidden. And if you go for walks by yourself too much, then you could be charged with a you might be charged with the crime of own life. O w n l i f e own life. You don't want to be. It's like thought crime, where if you like privacy, you could be charged with a, a crime. Own life. <laughs> wow! Is that ever? It's yeah. That, we live in a society where everybody's uh, conforming. It's okay. It's it's in a way we're not conforming. For okay, an example in the 1950s, when there were what two or three or four TV channels, everybody in the nation was watching Uncle Milty, you know, Milton Berle, and knew what was going on. Okay, so nowadays we have 750 different TV channels. Nevertheless, where we're conforming is you've got to get cable and you've got to get those 755 TV stations. Everybody's got to have them. That's where we're conforming. Yeah, more endless, uh, what is it, the old saying in the, in the book? Uh, I, I keep mixing it up with what the Jesuits philosophy of learning against learning, but um, what does it say in the book? Something about learning. Anyways, um, what is it that he says there? Learning, it's not learning against learning. What does they say there? There's something about learning. Maybe it's thinking. Maybe that's what it is. Anyways, uh, what are things uh, he mentions too about thought crime and how that uh, it does not entail uh, death 
Salk Klein is, and then he has in capital letters, is death. Um, what do you think about that? Because, you know, he, he recognizes himself as a dead man. And I have my own take, but I want to hear what you have to say first. Uh, this is where I think he was engaging in a little bit of hyperbole. And most people, I think, would say a lot of bit of hyperbole. No, it, I, I don't, it's hyperbole. It's exaggeration, but I, I'm not sure it's a lot. He's trying to describe for effect. He's trying to describe a, a dystopian society to the max, to the ultimate, logical, most hideous fruition. And he, in the book, in the book it describes, in the book within a book, you know, supposedly written by Emmanuel Goldstein, but really written by the party, it uh, describes past, past totalitarian regimes. And this is where he briefly mentions the Inquisition in 1984 and other you know, like fascist regimes and dictatorships where uh, only people's actions and um, obedience, physical obedience was required. But he's talking now, uh, now he's warning about this society in 1984 under uh, Big Brother and the, the inner party where, and there's three of them again, Oceania and Eurasia and East Asia, they all operate like this. Every one of them is a, a, three societies where each of them, respectively, they, they're so totalitarian that it's not just your actions. Your, your, they, they don't just want obedient actions from their citizens. They want obedient thoughts. They're even going to control your thoughts. So can they do that? Um, we could get into that. There's so many. It's kind of creepy. Um, it's for people like Winston. Again, the brainwashing didn't take for people like him. Some people snap out of it. Some. So can they control everyone's thoughts? It's. I. I don't think they can. But they're. Well, again, at the end of the book, by the end of the book, they did, because they they beat him into it, and that's where the brutality comes in. So um, I'm kind of uh, split on that. I, I think he's using some hyperbole there. But then again, how much of that is real? How much, uh, how much could they uh, first indoctrinate, brainwash people into? Uh, it's been largely successful, but for the minority, the small number of people for for whom the brainwashing doesn't take, that's where they're going to beat you senseless and, and interrogate you uh, until you you come around and uh, love Big Brother, like uh, Winston does at the end of the book. But then, of course. Here comes the two death part. They're going to shoot him anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and you, I guess you could we could link that up with the depopulation agenda of the elites. Uh, Albus Huxley, I think, thought that that was inefficient. Uh, you know, a society could never get that way because uh, that's that's too inefficient going around shooting people even after you've got them converted. Well, not if you want to mass murdered 90% of the population or, or so, like Jacques Cousteau and Ted Turner and Barbara Marks Hubbard and a bunch of other elites have gone on record as uh, desiring to do. Hmm. So that's a long-winded answer. I don't know. 
I don't know. I think it's a mixture of hyperbole and uh, serious warning that, that, that's controlling your thoughts uh, and thought crime being a crime to death. Well, you know, it, when you think about I think about my life and I think about thought crimes and how this goes back to uh, when I started waking up thanks to a guy like you. And, and it, now we're talking about three and a half years ago when I started kind of waking up in this whole process and that when you think about it, uh, thoughts lead to language, to verbal communication at least. Um, and that, you know, we live in a society with things that we have researched and studied yourself. You've been doing it now for a couple of decades at least. And I've only, I'm, I'm, you know, a late bloomer here. I've only been doing it for four years. But the things that we know today, uh, there's a moment when you realize you've believed a whole bunch of lies and that really you are a dead man. You realize how dead you are intellectually, spiritually, that you are already, you know, a zombie, if you will, a walking corpse full of lies and deceptions, and that you may have to make a choice what you're going to do. Well, where you're dead is socially, and you were talking about that a couple of minutes ago. Yeah, we're, uh, we're, we, are, we are dead socially. We, we are, and the more and more you learn and you break away from the programming that you've gone through your whole life and start, you know, questioning things, the more you... Bec- it, it, it's more than just a thought crime. It's, but it is. It is a thought crime. It's a thought crime towards society to question things. Uh, to question government, to question religion, to question all the things that you're told from school, your family, uh, on the television. Uh, and it is, in a way, becomes you become a rebel, whether you like it or not, because society around you, the people around you, are going to look at you. Uh, they're going to do the punishing. It's not even, the state doesn't have to. In our, we live in Oceania, and uh, the, the version of Oceania now, the state doesn't even have to punish you. It's the people around you that will punish you. They will draw away from you. They won't talk to you. They'll say you're annoying, you're a burdensome, that you're negative. They won't have anything to do with you. You know what I mean? And that's, well, maybe this is where the prole, that's how they control the proles because we're not part of the party. But I mean, when I think about thought crimes, the thing that I first comes up, you know, it's just, uh, what would be a good example? Uh, well, this 9-11 again is a fine example. The whole notion that maybe the United States government, the federal government, and all its agencies were involved in it. <laughs> and, it, you know, just thinking that and then finding other people that were willing to even converse with that or hear that, you know, it's, it is, it's, it's, in a way, it is a thought crime, you know, a crime against society as a whole. Um, or, you know, is, is religion and so, you know, religion I find in this uh, dystopic society that we live in today, and I, I think... Uh, Orwell touches on it in 1984, but you know one of the ways that it controls our thoughts um, and how they use uh, the double 
uh, what is that again? Double. Why my brain never? I only want to say double speak. Double speak. Double speak. Thank you. And this whole thing about religion, how they use religion, is the tool to do that. I really believe at this point, and a little bit of research that I've done, that the corporate church has been in this country at least since 17 something, around the, around the quote unquote uh, revolutionary war period, and it's always been there. That. The state and the church have, have had this unholy alliance in this country for that long. It's magnified itself extremely at this point. But anyways, how religion is the tool that they use for doublespeak and and uh, even, uh, you know, they've got the new speak that uh, comes through the media and in particular, we think about texting, we think about the uh, Facebook, we think about emails, and I look at myself, my in, in, it's hard for me to even write a meaningful paragraph or two these days, you know what I mean? Um, uh, so everything's been condensed through Newspeak, and then double thinking, you know, uh, where you use religion, and all the contradictions that are sent to you you have to know this. You have to recognize this within or the corporate church structure. Everything, you know, I never, you know, I never realized how m- there are probably more lies within the organized church, what we call Christianity, than even outside. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I can expand upon that and give examples, whether it's future dispensationalism, whether it's... Um, just you know, uh, yeah, part of that future distance, you know, whether there's a seven-year tribulation period, pre-trib, all this nonsense. It's just uh, the twisting of scriptures completely, uh, the Word of God, and the you know how it's used to uh, confuse people. And that's just an example. But I really do think the tool that they use, one of the most effective tools they use, is actually the church. Does that make any sense with that rant at all? <laughs> Maybe this gets into also the falsification or the rewriting of history. Nobody gets taught about Schofield. Nobody gets taught about the infiltration of Oxford University and Oxford Press by Romanists right around the time of Schofield and why Schofield was uh, promoted at that time from that source. Uh, also, nobody. Okay, you want to talk about the rewriting of history, the rewriting of church history? It's a fact that I, I want to say I won't. But I think it's every single one. Every every single Reformation leader, every single Reformation you know forefather. We're not supposed to say father. I understand that. Every single Reformation, every single ref, early reformer uh, of any kind of note. Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, uh, you can trace it down to uh, even Charles Spurgeon in the 1800s, and, I, and all of the Anabaptists. And I include them because I think they were uh, more accurate, and they were against state church, and they were against having leaders, really, uh, prominent leaders. They were more humble. But all those folks taught, uh, Zwingli, they all taught that... Um, the office of the papacy was the Antichrist. The, 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 the Reformation was founded on two pillars, sola scriptura and 
the papacy is the Antichrist. And that's just one, the one sola scriptura the pillar. That's, that's a rewriting of history. There were two pillars there. And that's totally gone. That's whitewashed to me. Absolutely. You think about it. Even a person like, uh, what's his name, Hitchin? Is his name? Uh, the atheist that... Uh, Christopher Hitchens? Yeah. Even he was recognized in George Orwell that George Orwell had an affinity alike for the Reformation and what it was about, what it did. Now, he had a lot of issues about, which is perfectly fine to me, that a man can wrestle with things like what heaven is, whether you believe it or not, and the organized religion, all this stuff. You know, because at the end of the day, it looks like Orwell finally came around his letter days of life and became much more he just like myself he just despised spirituality I don't like it either it's a form of mind control I think this whole thing of living in fantasy that's my take on it we can expand on that what I mean by that but I think even Orwell had issues with these people that operated in spirituality instead of the reality um <clears throat> But yeah, the thing that I noticed about uh, with him, uh, with Orwell, is that he had an affinity. He recognized whether he liked all that they were saying or teaching, uh, the hypocrisy that was in the institutions of the Reformation. Still, he saw the value of the Reformation. I think you and I have recognized this, and anybody else who doesn't love it as Research and history will come to also the realization of how important the Reformation is. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you believe or not, really doesn't matter. The fact is, just recognizing the the magnitude, the influence on the empire, on the world, this Reformation, he recognized it. So, I, I I find that fascinating about Orwell. I think you know he was one of those guys. Who learned early on in life, probably like you and, my, and myself, um, that you become so hesitant of becoming part of the group. You want to stay outside because you not know, by staying outside, by looking outside, you have been able to be able to critically think more. And this goes back to this whole thing about thought crimes and how how it's the group that does the uh, mind control. It does the controlling of your thoughts, how do they do that? Well, you think about it. How, you know, it's only our moments alone that we can actually start critically thinking. If we're in a group, inevitably, especially people like ourselves, we get influenced by others and they're babbling and they're talking and they're quacking. Um... And it, and that and it will you get sucked up into their thinking process, if you will. Their I don't know what the right words are to say, but I think it helps them. I'm making myself clear is the importance that the message that uh, in 1984 of a man time alone and how that you know through the telespeak and through the group. This it's in other words. The best way to control another person is to be constantly around them, interjecting thoughts. And to look like them. Don't stand out. Right. But, yeah, we have to look like them. That's right. 
Yeah. <laughs> that's definitely that part of the conform. But you know, the whole thing about I'm fascinated about it as a thought crime because you know, Winston talks about you know the only thing that a man really has, and it, today it's the same way, really, if we're really honest about it. it, it it's not like it is in the movies. It's one of the things I've I've very become very discouraged, and I realized like even the movies of like 1984 were. Uh, Deliberate the imagery and all that to try to present a a world so dark and so dim that one will ex- be more appreciative of the world that you're in now, your reality. When when the fact is we're we're in the Orwellian nightmare now, and how do they do that? Well, they do that by constantly interfering with your that that space between your ears. It's those few centimeters that's yours. If you go to the doctor's office, there's the television blaring, the telespeak. The television is everywhere you go. People are watching it. You go to the mall or whatever. It's constant bombardment of music or imagery from, you know, whatever it may be. These are all ways of keeping you from thinking. Do you get what I'm saying? If you get in the group, you go to church or whatever it is, unless you're in a situation like what we're in now, now I understand why guys like Hitchin and all that belong to these kind of, well, I don't know what they're calling, but I guess they're George Orwell, you know, clubs. They just talk about them, you know what I mean? To get together in one-on-one or, or a couple guys get together and just talk this way. You know how important it is, uh, the importance of it. Um, as Kitchen says, you know, all well matters, still matters. Um, but back to our own reality that they try to do on a constant basis. If you're really, I mean, I don't know how you feel about it, your workplace or where it is, there's constantly being mind control, controlling your thoughts. And when you start right. independently thinking, well, yeah, in a way, it's a thought crime. When you start getting into people constantly being bombarded by entertainment stimuli, uh, you know, uh, who focused on that more, emphasized that more uh, and, and better, was Aldous Huxley in Brave New World. And the, right. the, books, the books do overlap, and uh, Brave New World is also very prescient. Uh, I do find 1984 uh, superior. I think it's predictable predicted more, more things have come true from 1984. They're both incredible works. There is, I've mentioned this on um, I think A Brave New World is a little more challenging to read, though, isn't it? Um, it's actually a little bit shorter in length, but uh, I suppose maybe the language is a little more complex. Yeah, I think it is. I remember when I read it, it's like... Do I really understand half of what Huxley's really saying? I mean, say I think if I read it, I would have a better understanding. But when I read it, you know, if you're sure to, <laughs> Michael, you're sure to encounter this because it's very much in vogue today. Uh, there's a book by Neil Postman called "Amusing Ourselves to Death." He commits this. Uh, the the Collins brothers used to say this all the time, but I, I've heard it in a bunch of places. It's common nowadays to hear people where they look around at our world and they, they see how we're entertained to death and, and, and uh, with Prozac, how we're drugged, drugged up, just like in Brave New World. 
it's common nowadays to think that Brave's New World was more prescient, or predicted more, more things have come true from Brave New World than 1984. There is a real quick litmus test where you can uh, defuse that, <laughs> and it's real simple. <laughs> ask somebody, if you ever hear somebody say that, ask them what happened on 9-11. And they will go into 19 Muslim hijackers and, and the official government story. So you see what's happening is this. They don't understand false flag attacks and the world will live in. <laughs> because if they did, then they would understand that 1984 has come true even more than the new world. Yeah. I think, you know, if you think about it, read the, the novel. I mean, it's very disturbing. It's very unsettling. I mean, when I, I remember I texted you and I started, you know, reading it and I just couldn't stop. I read like the first 120 pages and I was up to like two in the morning and I'm like almost in tears. I remember I sent that to you in the email saying, you know, I feel like crying because in reality what he was talking about in 1984 is truth, is reality. Now going back to these movies, I really think I'm really starting to hate Hollywood. Let's put it that way. Well, there's plenty of reasons for that. Yeah, and one of the just thinking about 1984 and the movies that they gave us, and this dark, dreary imagery, and in reality, once again, we are in it, but we're in a different... The reality of 1984 is not the imagery that they gave us in the movies. It's what we're in now. There's all these pleasantries. You know, the roads are nice. The, the lawns are manicured. The, the houses are nice-looking boxes. You know, the, there's the car, all these things. It, it's a different world than what they gave yeah. us in the movies. And I, the only thing I could think of is, once again, the CIA, the government is involved in making these movies. I know they were involved with, not, with Animal Farm. That uh, Oh, yeah. Well, no, I can tell you this also. Okay, you want to... This, uh, I found this in a book called Who Paid the Piper by Francis Saunders. This, it's uh, Francis with an E. It's a female. Uh, in Who Paid the Piper, it's about the, uh, the CIA working and fomenting the Cold War. And um, in one part of it, it records how when George Orwell died... He, he had a deathbed marriage uh, to, to a woman, and this woman is probably, she was the model for Julia in 1984, and it wasn't a thing where they loved each other. Um, I, as far as I can tell, it's, I think he was concerned about you know somebody watching over his adopted son, uh, but so he married this woman, and so she got the rights to his material, and as she was kind of a, I think, a gold digger type to a materialistic person. As soon as Orwell died, right after, uh, the CIA flew uh, E. Howard Hunt, who was everywhere. The guy was at the Bay of Pigs. He was in part of Watergate. He was part of the JFK assassination. They flew E. Howard Hunt over to orchestrate the uh, the buying of the movie rights to Orwell's books from Sonia Brownell Orwell. Mm-hmm. Sonia, she had three names. Uh, her name is Sonia Brownell. 
but she she was all for it because she got some money and she was promised the uh, she was promised that she would get to meet Clark Gable. That's all she cared about. <laughs> so she sold the movie rights to Orwell's books and right to the CIA, really. And right away, the CIA backs first they backed a black and white movie from the mid fifties about 1984, and it was horrible. <laughs> it was it was so horrible that. The uh, the actor they chose to play Winston Smith was a fat guy, and uh, I mean, if you, Winston Smith was emaciated in the book. Right. Uh, that's by the way, in 1984, the, they came out the year 1984. They came out with the movie, the other movie, the color version of 1984 with John Hurt. That's the one thing I think that movie got wonderfully well was the char- the, the characters they picked, at least the characters Julia, and then picking John Hurt to play Winston Smith. I thought that was dead on. That's just how I predicted them. I didn't like them picking Richard Burton for O'Brien. I didn't, that didn't fit with me. But anyway, that's on the, off of the side. But this 1950s black and white movie version that was made by the CIA, it had the good guys winning in the end. <laughs> and it was obvious, oh man, Big Brother didn't win. No, Winston wasn't brainwashed. Uh, and it's it, because, of course, the, the they start that that began this twisting of 1984 to manipulate to to convince people that it was really writing about the Russians, and that's where the John Birchers picked it up. And the John Birchers, ever since then, have taught that uh, 1984 was against Stalinist Russia, just like Animal Farm was. It's it's not true at all. All you got to do is read the novel to figure that out. Right. Um, okay, and then they uh, subsequently some versions of Animal Farm were made, and sure enough, the same thing happens in Animal Farm. It's, it's at the, in the novel Animal Farm, the, the, it ends with the pigs walking around like humans, and the animals are living in squalor and depressed, and there's not a damn thing they can do about it. That was Orwell's message. In 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 the movie versions of Animal Farm, sure enough. Once the pigs turn into humans and start acting like humans and are oppressing the animals too much, the animals re- revolt and and throw the pigs out and and create this utopia. They did the same thing with Animal Farm. It has this happy ending, completely altered the ending of Orwell. This is what happened, and, and it stems back to the CIA buying the movie rights from Orwell's deathbed widow. It's in Who, Who Paid the Piper by Francis Saunders. Hmm. Well, yeah, you can see what they're doing. They 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 use these imagery, the movies, as a form of mind control to manipulate the message, and it's really disturbing because when we look at like once again 1984, what it's really saying, and then what the imagery there is in our own reality, we're living in 1984 now. Most people cannot even recognize it because of this imagery of these movies, and they think that it's going to be this darkest, you know, repressed system when we're, uh, how do I say this? Maybe it will after a World War III scenario. Maybe it will, uh, sure, but it's more like they they presented an image of, of like, communist China or North Korea type of thing. But we're in it now. We don't even recognize it because of the Distractions. Yeah. 
And that's where I think Brave New World and 1984 coalesced. They merged together. I think both authors got so much right. And that's where, uh, that's where Huxley's right. I, I, if you, if you, yeah, people, you, you, and the characters in 1984 do walk around wearing the, the blue overalls. I mean, that's, sure. and no, we're not doing that. We're walking around wearing blue jeans, blue jeans and clothes <laughs> that hang off a butt and show our butts off and show our boobs off and all of that. And that's where Huxley got it right. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting take. So it's a blend between Brave New World and 1984 is what they ended up choosing for Oceana. <laughs> On Lance, I mean, there's still, we could have World War III and come out, and, and that could be the war that's referenced. Remember when Winston and his mother and, and sister, uh, their guest was a war and there's rationing, and that's when he ran away with the chocolate bar. Unless uh, we have World War III and, and it turns into that, even here. Uh, yeah, which I imagine that in the end, that's what they want for us. Um, but for now, we're uh, they're trying a different tactic with us. Um, man, there's somewhere to go. We didn't, we didn't, I don't know if we even really touched really what we thought we were going to talk about because inevitably, with all the information, <laughs> all those something. Things, I- Something I wanted to mention real quick, when, when we were talking about Joe Stalin and the rewriting of history, we, Viz and I talked about this several times, but in the, uh, during the Civil War, the, the war between the states in the United States, it's a historical fact that the Russians, the Russian Tsar sent his, uh, sent his fleets over to New York and to San Francisco and they were hailed in San Francisco. They helped put out a fire, and several Russian sailors died doing so, and they were citywide heroes and were given a big parade. In New York, they were given a huge parade as heroes because they were officially uh, siding up with the Allies and led putting France and Britain on notice that if France and Britain were going to get involved in the war on the side of the South, that uh, Russia which had just got a bloody nose from, from them in the war, Crimean War. They wanted another round. They were ready, and they, they joined up with, uh, you know, on Abe Lincoln's side. And so they were allies of the Union, and yet that, no, virtually nobody knows that anymore. All we know is communist Russia, bad guys. When in the 1800s, they were our allies. They were our only allies. <laughs> Uh, and that has been rewritten out of history. Very, very Orwellian thing. You know, kind of like in church history, the fact that the every single church reformer taught that the office of the papacy was antichrist. Same thing. Falsification, rewriting of history. Oh, yeah. You think about the uh, counter-reformation and the Jesuits and how they... Uh, have controlled uh, the message and the education and um, the seminaries and et cetera, and it totally twisted the truth. Um, one thing I want, I want to quote here, too, uh, see if I can find it. We're going along with reality control. Yeah. Let's see. I'm, I'm gonna, I'll just read this. It's, uh, it was quite simple. 
he's talking about reality control and double think. And, and all that was needed was uh, an unending series of victories over our over your own memory, reality control. They called it Newspeak. Of course, we listened to this earlier in the beginning of the broadcast. I double think. Uh, and this is, you know, he interrupted his thinking once again from the, the telescreen tele and the, the uh, instructor for his calisthenics for the day. He says, stand easy, barked instructus, a little more... Uh, was it Jim? Notice how masculine that uh, gym instructor, that female gym instructor, is. Absolutely, yeah. That's the image that they give us. Winston sank his arms to the sides and slowly refilled his lungs with air. His mind slid away into the labyrinthine, labyrinthine world of doublethink: to know and not to know. To be conscious of complete truthfulness while telling carefully constructed lies. To hold simply two opinions which cancel out, uh, knowing them to be contrary and believing in both of them. The use of, this is what I was trying to get at, not learning against learning, but to use logic against logic. Logic against logic. To, um, repudiate morality while laying uh, claim to it, to believe that democracy was impossible and that the party was the guardian of democracy. So this it's interesting, you know, this whole double think, I don't know why I never can remember that word, but the requirement to even use double think and understand it, you have to use double think. And when we look at our world today, and how it's the reality control, how um, it's all about our memories. It's all about controlling our thinking. It's all about controlling the narrative. And if one is really honest, you get to a point you realize that is what we're victims of completely. It, it seems to be the biggest crime of all is the fact that uh, this, how they've controlled our thinking. That uh, I mean, not only that, but this whole thing of uh, to know or not to know. This, you know, I guess look at look at our own journey and this whole desire to find the truth, and yet how much of the truth do we really know? You know what I'm saying? Have you ever thought about that in your own journey, um, trying to figure out what your one's reality is, what the truth really is? Well, yeah, come, I'll come to a conclusion know. That, that you know it, there's so many contradictions in your life. Orwell wrote an essay. It's a very short essay. Years before he wrote his two most famous novels, what the heck was it called? Um, something. It was like something about how how do we know what we know? Or that was definitely the theme of it. Uh, but that, that's all he wrote about in this essay was everything. Almost everything we're, we're we think we know comes from some authority figure over us who has, you know, supposedly we're told taken all this time researching carefully this feel like that, that the moon is so many miles away from the earth. He gets into some celestial stuff in this, which is trust 
this from the experts, but do we really know? Uh, it, can we trust this authority figure? How easy is it for this authority figure to be mistaken? Does the authority figure have an agenda? Uh, yes, there's a shocking amount of, of things that we think we know, but if we only know it, you know, quote unquote, know it because we're told it by by white coated experts or experts in businesses. <laughs> I wish I could recall the name of that essay. It you know it's probably available online. I do know one thing. When you look at uh, when he's being interrogated in Room 101 by O'Brien, those same uh, topics are brought up. Uh, but, you know, how do we really, you know, O'Brien, or not O'Brien, but Wisner is insistent that he knows the truth and about evolution and about um, cosmology and about this, where the sun is and the stars and the planets and, and um, history. And O'Brien's like, well, do you really? Do you really know the truth? And yep. brings, that's, that's where Orwell was going in his thought processes. Yep. So that so that's I mean we probably a good place to actually stop the conversation and read or play the reading of uh, that part of uh, 1984 um, because uh, yeah that you know if you think about it, that's where we're, where we're at the more we learn the more we realize how little we know that's what's so disturbing about this whole journey and how true that it's not just a cliche it's it's, it's our brutal reality. And I can just imagine those people who are are not only that are forced to you know, just think about just think about teachers, public school teachers, and other teachers. Doesn't really matter, but uh, prof- professional teachers who are basically forced to teach this narrative, a false narrative, a lie, a Jesuit education. I come to realize that you know, you know. It's, that we all have received uh, this Jesuitical education, <laughs> whether and, public and, or private. And being forced to uh, get the students into groups more and more so for the group think thing. That there's definitely a strong push in that. Yeah. And it's interesting because that's, you know, they, they talk about the, the China model of education or I guess the Japan one, the Oriental one, where you, had, you get the groups and you work together. Yep. students, and it's it's a brilliant way to control um, the group. Uh, the group controls itself, and then if you're an individual, they try to be an individual. You know, this this it's amazing. Here's another example of double think in this country. We we claim that we honor and and praise the individual and individuality, yet they do everything in their power to destroy that. Yeah, you're guilty of own life. Then. Yeah, and then you're, and you know, yeah, <laughs> you really aren't rewarded in that. Uh, I can think about myself when it comes to music and art, and uh, to try to do original art and original music, and you know, there are people that appreciate it, but the masses don't, and you won't make a lot of money doing it if you're being yourself. There's just not money in it. There's no great reward. Uh, there's, you know, money's not everything, but. You know what I'm saying? There's you're not gonna they're not gonna encourage you. You start to realize that all the the musicians and artists that you 
you were you idolized throughout your life were they were propped up deliberately. Yeah, payola, yeah. the yeah. corporation, sure. And that they're they're not really the best artists or best musicians, but we should, but that's what the imagery that they want. It's just like once again this. Uh, you know, the art is propaganda. <laughs> it turns out to be that way, uh, one way or the other, whether you are a member of the party or not. If you're trying to pro- pro- project your biases, your opinions, your view of the world, and in a way it's propaganda. So, but it's it's fascinating, the whole thing about 1984, the book, I, to read it again, and it, man, it, doesn't, it, it just swallows you up. You can't get enough of it. At least for me, and you want to hear it over and over again. You want to read it. You want to research it because uh, he touches on so many things, uh, so many areas of our life, and you know it, it's. I don't know. I mean, I'm not a I'm not a big fiction fan myself. I've never been in, it, but to, to be sometimes there's a guy like. Hmm. Orwell is really good at trying to get his message across within fiction. So this wasn't really that much fiction. <laughs> no, it turns out to be not to be, but for most people, that's how they'll see it. Yeah, they might see it as message of uh, communism or uh, totalitarianism, uh, whatever. The superficial level, but the the deeper messages that are within it, the, the personal messages that he tries to convey uh, are amazing to me. At least. And I never recognized that before. I don't recognize it now. So. <clears throat> How what he was trying to say was much deeper than a political message, you know? And, so, and it was much deeper than dissenters get beat up. I mean, that's, that's the message of so many people nowadays, that Orwell was learning about a society where brutality was going to be used on dissenters. No, the book is much, much more sophisticated than that. Right. Well, the brutality was reserved for a very small portion of the population, very small. So, uh, if you're game, you can stay on with me and listen to this part. We could end now, or we can wait until after we listen to this little section. It's going to be about, I don't know, 15 minutes, something like that, of uh, the old Bill O'Brien interrogation of uh, Winston. So. Yeah, let's well, let's go ahead and end it here. Yeah, i got to do some stuff. Okay. So, hey, man, I really mm-hmm. appreciate that. I know it's, it's probably seemed a little, I don't know. We were bouncing all over the place. So we, we, we can follow up on email. Yeah, maybe you know, in a month or, or we could do another show, uh, uh, part two of this, because uh, I, you've got me captivated. <laughs> I really, I'm going to be spending a lot of time researching George Orwell and um, 1984, and, and I don't know, maybe we can even talk about uh, Brave New World, tie tie that in more. Yeah, um, sure. Because uh, I mean, I I really can I really can relate to Winston. I feel like Winston. Yeah, I know. Me too. You know, I, mean, I really, I really can connect to that character. So, it, except for the part where he just wants to uh, act out his lust and and fornicate. Me, he's not interested in in being in love with somebody. He just wants to rebel against the state by fornication. That's the only thing that I 
could do without in the book. Well, yeah, I think that's because we have uh, Christ in our life, Jesus Christ in our life, and the Spirit, so it changes you, man. But I think about myself prior to being, you know, surrendering to the Lord a couple of years ago. I mean, that's who I was. I think about it. I think that's that's, you know, it, it ends up uh, if you're a man of the world, an earthly man, a, you know, basically living as an animal in an animal state, you come to a point where you realize, well, for you, at least for I, who I was, the greatest, best thing that ever was for me was the fornicating. Well, and unfortunately, I can tell you what's real. This is unfortunate, and I don't know that there's a resolution, but that is really the only quiver that a man has in his uh, in his arrow in the in the power what play between the sexes and, and and that's and and once you become a christian you you lose that and you're as a man you're very vulnerable and you can't just you know they call it pumping and dumping women if you becoming a womanizer like that and you get a lot of power over women if you're a secular you know a, a hedonist like that once you become a christian man and you can't do that you 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 lose your power and what what here's what Here's what happens. You enter into a union with a woman, and scripturally, uh, a woman is supposed to submit to you, and, um, and, and, and neither of you are supposed to deny bodies to each other. You're supposed to have regular sex, but today you can have a rebellious wife who basically, she, what do they say, cuts you off? It stops having sex, and then you go to one of these hireling shepherd pastors you, because you, as a man, a Christian man, you don't have that that arrow anymore. You can't go out and fornicate and and make her jealous or, or you know, like the, the hedonists can do. You, you're at the mercy of a spiritual elder who needs to come in and bring your wife, your rebellious wife, in line. And today's hireling shepherd incorporated pastors will never do that. They will have no trouble criticizing. The husband, but they will not criticize the wife for anything. It's because feminism has infiltrated our churches, and and uh, an incorporated pastor does not want to tangle with feminism because then he could lose his tax exempt license. And that's where the modern Christian male is today. He is uh, powerless, completely powerless, unless he chooses to become a hedonist and resume fornicating with, with women. Yeah, so there's, there's my rant on them. But even there, um, you know, it's uh, when I look at myself because you know I spent most of my life being a worldly man and you know focus on my art, my music, and beautiful women, and you know again is you know having as much sex as you know fornicating as much as I could, you know. But that became the great meaning of my life, if I'm honest about it. And you know, people say, "Oh man, you're," they get a little slow phrasing, "you're pussy whipped" or whatever. Uh, the truth of the matter, uh, you are if, uh, in this world that they've created, uh, this Orwellian world where the great escape, the great meaning of man's life turns out to be um, the, his woman's vagina. I don't practice language I'm using, but that's you know that seems to be the case, right? You uh, uh, and so you're, you and then you're trapped in that dysfunctional, screwed up. Uh, dynamical relationship with a woman. So then there's the corporate world, the corporate world, the party that you're in. Uh, you know, the corporate world where you can't buck the system, you can't challenge the system, you got to follow 
uh, what the middle management and your manager and the CEOs, et cetera, say. You got to follow the party line. You got to do so. You're a slave to the system, then you come home and then you're a slave to the woman for the hope of having some vagina. And that's what it really comes down to. I mean, that sounds really cynical, uh, but that's what happens to a man in this world. It's, it's, well, evangelicals today, Michael, have perversely inverted headship. Uh, you can see it in, in these horrible movies that today's evangelicals praise, like uh, what are they, the Kendricks brothers, they, courageous and, and fireproof. Oh, my gosh, they love fireproof. Uh, they are totally anti-Scripture. They flip Scripture, they flip it on its head, and yet they, they in, in practical matters, they make the, the wife the, the head over the family. They'll deny it up and down, but that's what they do. And that's what today's uh, evangelicals have done. The message of those movies and the message of, of most incorporated churches today is uh, if the wife's not happy, uh, the husband is not loving her like Christ loved the ch- loves his church. So the husband has to bend over backwards and, and please her because only in pleasing her can the, the husband be redeemed. And what it does is it makes the wife's fickle feelings, the, the actual head over the family. And in First Peter, it makes it clear that even if the husband is not a believer, that that wife is to submit to him and and and. Uh, and, and obey him, honor him, and in, in so doing, her humbleness may win him around. That, but today's, boy, that is anathema to today's feminized churches. They get real uncomfortable, and they, they, they do, you know, I get double think gymnastics around that. They're not going to embrace that. <laughs> so, uh, message to you men out there, you married Christian, look out, man, if you're, if you if your wife gets rebellious, and I pity you, I've been there. If you've got to turn to one of these "quote unquote" pastors for well, help, most of you're them not going to get any help. Most of them have been trained to be that way. So we live in a culture society where it's been. Oh sure, and they think they think that they're supposed to be treated as princesses, you know, as queens. Yeah, and, I mean, yeah. and, and the greatest example out there right now, uh, demonstrating how things have gone awry is in the African-American black culture of black women. And now, I mean, I just listened to, is it uh, Sandra Blaine or Blind, whatever? She was part of the uh, black, uh, is it Black People Matter movement? You know, this whole thing that's going on with these, these false flag operations and, you know, with Charleston and all that. And, you know, how they're conquering, divide and conquering. And one of the, their methods is the black against whites, whites against black thing. And supposedly she was either committed suicide or died, uh, was murdered in prison. But if you listen to her and her behavior while she was uh, pulled over by a white police officer in Texas, and all the filthy language and this whole thing uh, about how she's supposed to be something more better than everyone else. And yeah, you know, there's, there's a multi, there's the fascist nature of the police state that we live in, you can see that, but also you look at her and her rebellious attitude. Called him every name under the sun and saying, "Oh, you can, we look at you tra- treating a woman that way," and you know, just being really rebellious. And I have to say this; I mean, it's going to sound, but it's not just black women, but this the, the image is being portrayed out in the media right now. 
there's obnoxious loudmouth black women. Now there's obnoxious loudmouth white women. It's but it's a typically with thing. short typically with short pink hair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, this whole attitude uh, that somehow I'm princess, you need to treat me. Somehow I've been subjugated and trod, you know, uh, trodden down by you, uh, a man who's most likely a, a pole, uh, you know, somebody who has no control over what's going on in society and just looking for, you know, uh, a piece <laughs> and looking for maybe a relationship with someone. And how women have been conditioned and trained to basically verbally abuse, manipulate, uh, deceive, control men. And how it, the message is out there that that's appropriate. That's proper women behavior to lie to their man, to pretend, and to do whatever it takes to manipulate the guy to get what you want. It's usually revolves around materialism and some silly little thing that's worth nothing that- to me. That's the message of most evangelical churches today, the incorporated ones. And that's the message of organ- parachurch organizations like Focus on the Family. A guy in Glenn Stanton, is a, I think Bob teaches this too. That is the overriding message. And it's scary. It's scary to, it's surreal that that many people stating that they believe in the scriptures can come to that conclusion, which is totally antithetical to the scriptures. It's it's creepy. But what it makes for is a very alienated, um, lonely existence for everybody. That's kind of, you get the no-fault divorces, you get the frivolous divorces, you get guys being divorce-raped. Uh, and it's destruction of the family. And how do they destroy the family? They destroy the family yeah, by... Children. Them. Like, quote, unquote, liberating the woman, the mother, the wife. Did they really do that? No, of course they didn't. And we can go into great detail about that. It's fascinating, too, when you talk about the uh, evangelical. But it's not just that. It's all organized uh, government-controlled corporate churches, which is all of them, just about. Very few that are at this point. I mean, it's very few. If you're lucky to even find one. Um that you look at like the Birch Society, the CNP, all these guys that control and manipulate the evangelical movement and then the, the, the quote-unquote Protestant churches in the United States, they're all controlled at the head by Knights of Maltas and Jesuits. Every single one of them. And if you just go back, if you get a chance to go back to what I did last yesterday in part one and two of the... What the heck is that called again? I just lost my mind. I have my memory <laughs> again. It's great. I'm getting this way. Um, uh, uh, the Secret Right. I don't know if you get a chance to... A guy named Josh Reed, I don't know if he's a Christian or not. Sounds like he's a little bit mixed up in a few things in the New Age. But he did a good job of exposing the CMP, uh, the Birch Society, how they use uh, this double talk and double think in the, in, uh, the media, especially on these Sunday morning shows, you find that all these guys are all either Jesuits, Nice and Malta, playing the opposing sides and manipulating uh, not only the media, the mainstream media, and the alternative media, but the churches themselves. So the messages are coming straight from the Jesuits. And, you know, what they're doing is, uh, look at Rome, is a deliberate attempt to destroy the family. And what are they using? What is one of their tools? It turns out to be 
the organized religion, the leadership within. How many of them will realize that? I don't know. I think most of them have just been manipulated, brainwashed. And if, you think that, uh, if you think it's crazy, uh, you can read in history how that happened to the British uh, Anglican, the British state churches in the late 1800s. Uh, read the book, The Secret History of the Oxford Movement by, I think it's Walter Walsh. And uh, that's how the Society of Jesus does it. He records the actual history of it being done there. He doesn't emphasize the fact that they were uh, Jesuits as much. He gets into that a little bit. But it's, it's very easy to tell. It's very easy to tell. Once you especially read some other books, like the book by Greisinger and Edmund Paris and just a dozens of, of uh, scores of others, I can say. You know, it really comes to a point where I, it's really weird. I was going back... I can tie it in a little bit with Winston in 1984 and his, his desperate need. And also, this is this is Orwell. Orwell liked love nature. You can see it. He loved nature. That's why he brought up his, you know, Winston going and walking alone in the park and talking the about golden country. What's that? He calls it the golden country in the novel. Yeah. And so, um, you know, even you know, he recognized then how precious it was, he's something like a thrush or a bird or whatever the animals that he saw. And was, he brings it up here and there in his walks. And how Julia was just totally disinterested in any of that. How disconnected she was, how indoctrinated she was into the, the system, and how she lost her humanity. And it really got to a point for Winston, I see, like many of us today, in order to even have a relationship, it had to be turned into some fornicating thing about the vagina, and it could be anything deeper than that. I mean, it really is. That is the status. That is what feminism has turned the relationships into in the West, Western civilization. That, that is accurate. So, I mean... You know, let, me, let me cite this. If anybody wants to, to read this uh, being chronicled on two blogs, excellent blogs, uh, I wouldn't so much go and read the comments on there because, like the comments on YouTube or elsewhere, the comment it's a dumpster fire. You got some real morons on there, but the the two bloggers themselves are extremely incisive, and they are Christians. They document well what we've been talking about regarding feminism and what it's done to churches and to the relationships between men and women. The blogs are. Dalrock, D-A-L-R-O-C-K. And the other one that is, uh, not as many people check this site out, but uh, this site is even more acutely incisive. It's a younger site. Uh, uh, The Society of Phineas, uh, P-H-I-N-E-A-S. He takes that name from from the Old Testament. (laughs) It's pretty very. So you can look it up for yourself. The Society of Phineas. That's the best one. Dalrock is a little bit more, slightly more ecumenical, although he's still dead on. I would still recommend him. Now, there are some others that are too ecumenical, but those two, Dalrock and the Society of Phineas. Start reading those new men, and uh, you'll get your head straightened out, you Christian men. Well, that's, you know, it's, you know, it's not as, as people might perceive this as be hating on women, but it's really not hating on women because they're they're just victimized by this 
satanic system that we're under, and they just don't realize what it means to be a woman anymore. But we're in a, in a situation as men in this world, if you're going to be a Christian man, it's all. It, and by the way, it's turning out that everything that you hear on the radio, and the, the, most of the stuff that you see on the television or on the internet, all these these the imagery, the message of what a man is coming out of the church is completely wrong. And that you know, it, hey, you know, if you go to these blog sites and you start re-educating yourself and uh, of what it means to be a man, and then also understand that. You know, yeah, it, it's going to be a challenge. You know, you know, the reality is that many of us might end up because now that we become, we know what it means to start to understand what it means to be a man. That you might not have a woman in your life because of that. That's where we're headed, unless you want to be a fornicator. Uh, that's right. That's where we're headed. That's where we are. What am I saying? What am I talking about? That's where we are. And then, you know. Uh, because of a direct result of uh, Marxian feminism. Yeah, I mean, we look at, uh, you know, when I lived in England 20-some years ago, uh, you know, one thing I noticed when I came back as time went on is that whatever happened in England, it happened in, it happens in England like 5, 10 years, 20 years before, but then it gets transferred over here to this country naturally because we are a British colony. Yeah. And we're, we're behind the times with them. So... But then I remember that it was 60, 65% of all couples were unwedded. Uh, it didn't matter if you were black or white. It didn't matter what stratus or what part of society you're in. Or, you know. So uh, that's you know, all these unwedded uh, couples, uncommitted, the divorce rate was just huge. And that's what's going on here. But there's another aspect of it, too. Because we've been twisted in not understanding what it even means to be a man and a woman in a marriage for real these days, that I ask the question at this point, because most people are married through the state anyways, are they fornicating now, even though they're officially recognized by the state as being married? Isn't you know, are they fornicating anyways? Yeah. The evangelicals' uh, notions of what a marriage is, is is not scriptural, not with their marriage licenses, not at all. So, yeah, that's uh, something you could look at and question, certainly, yeah. And it's fascinating to see Orwell's understanding of women back then, and although people accuse him of being uh, chauvinistic, or um, you know, the truth of the matter is he was bringing out some really insightful information. And... Um, about women and men and their relationship and how it's been kind of, it's, it's all messed up. <laughs> it was the back then was he was recognizing it. And the behavior of young women, the behavior of uh, women in general and how they, uh, they, need to be careful. they need to be careful. They really do. They need to be careful with women because uh, they're big mouths. <laughs> this is something Huxley emphasized this 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 topic more so than than uh, Orwell. Yeah, and it's it, it, there's a reality to that. Why did that happen? I don't think I can think the reason why it's happening is because from a very early age, women are being con- encouraged to just be big mouths, self-absorbed, thinking about themselves. They can help them to, you know, control, manipulate, get the guy of their dreams, their knight in shining armor, and 
you know, and they, the time to get them. They don't have to bring anything to the table for a marriage. They don't have no. to do anything. Most of them don't know how to cook. And most of them don't know how to really even be a woman, you know what I mean? And I said, well, you're being sovereignistic. Well, you know what? Yeah, you know, they brought up to be masculine now. Yeah. It, it, things have been really twisted. Really, the role of men and women is really the women is now the woman is in charge. You see that through the media. You see that through all the every sitcoms for the past thirty years or more, where it's you know men is the idiot, the man is the idiot, he's the dumbass, and that the women are in charge really. So, and that's a terrible message in the end that sends. It's, it's, really, it is, and it's very systematic of destroying the family. And people are going to say, I'm sounding chauvinistic once again, but whatever. I mean, the truth is true. It's also scriptural. It's called headship, and that's what's been destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. That's a a topic that we need to talk about as well as we go into the lives, or or in in this, doing these recordings, that uh, talk about that. I mean, that's that's why I said when I sent that email to you, how do we do a show, one show, on Orwell, uh, 1984? Or we it's now almost three hours into it, and how much do we really even touch? It's such a it's in depth and insightful book, and as you tie it in with what's going on today, I mean that's a whole series, that's a whole show in itself. You know what I mean? If you did a show every week, you could do that for years just on this topic. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'm glad you did it. I'm really glad that you forced me to, or encouraged me to do this because. Uh, a, I get a chance to talk to you, and then B, just uh, the, the thought process of really thinking of what's really going on in this world. Um, and you know, the, the whole thing too. Uh, we got to talk about sometimes all the, you know, they call it prophecy. I mean, all these different uh, quote unquote Christian sites out there that are all about prophecy, and how it really is all about mind control. And when you start to realize how they're wrong all the time and how it's just a, a way of manipulating the masses, Christian masses, into fear, and it's all fear-mongering, and, you know, it's the twisting of the messages, you know. The amount of crap that's out there right now uh, coming out of, quote-unquote, Christian websites and YouTube channels, it's just mind-blowing. Yep. And these are people that are quote unquote Christians. And uh, really, the church and state in, in uh, the world that we live in, at least in our society, they're inseparable. They're the same thing. Yep. And so we have to address that sometimes. It was in Nazi Germany, and for the same reasons. Same yeah. reason. <laughs> Nazi Germany. Nazi America. Okay. Well, I. Um, I guess we'll end the recording here, and then we'll talk. I guess we'll, uh, it's almost three hours, so. Then the next time I'll, I'll play that other part, so, of O'Brien, so. Interrogation of Winston. That would be good, so. Stay on there. I'm going to end the recording here, and then we'll just touch bases. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.